have three papers this afternoon. Uh, Jeremy Black will tell us about the problems of being, being a conservative academic. That will take us into some time in, uh, I would say, December. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll turn our attention to the conservative response to Islam, which will take us into next year sometime. <laughs> John will uh, sum things up. Next century, perhaps. <laughs> no. But, um, <coughs> Jeremy. Thank you, thank you very much. First of all, I have top copies of the paper here if anybody hasn't got it or the report is able to print it out. Um, and I'd like to, th to thank Roger for inviting me, which is very, very welcome, and in particular to pay tribute to his book, Tenured Radicals, which is in many senses a much more informed and insightful uh, ability to cover this topic from the American perspective than I could hope to um, do. So I'd urge people to read that. And lastly, I'd like to take up Roger's point and call for optimism this morning, very eloquently uh, given, and I'd say that the, the only cause, but it's an important cause for optimism, is that students pay far less attention to their lecturers than the lecturers imagined. <laughs> but the, the, actual, the actual cause of optimism could probably be located there. But having started in that way, I think one has to go on and say it is a bleak situation, and it's a bleak situation because, in a sense, um, higher education has become much more prominent in Western societies over the last 10 years than it was 30, 50, 70, in the case of Britain, even 10 years ago. The percentage of the school-age population going on to higher education is much greater. Um, and that means that what, in some respects, was a rather unusual, quaint survival of 19th century means of education pushed through into the 20th century, added with a bit of vocationalism which people had borrowed from the German technical universities, has now instead become a formative experience for the young across the West. Um, and given that that is the case, it is of course surprising to see the way in which societies, whether conservative or liberal, however you wish to define those two terms, and far more eloquent and learned people have spoken on that than me this morning, um, have in a way given over what happens in universities to a small, self-selecting group whose values are often of those markedly at variance with the societies in which they live. And that's not simply a personal reflection. Others make the same reflection. To give you an idea, French scholar Bruno Neveu, who's uh, unusual among French scholars and being very pro-American, told me 10 years ago, having spent a period of time in the South and the West of the United States, how appalled he was to visit university after university where the academics lived in what he called a bubble in which they were completely contemptuous of the society around them. And I think that that is a fairly clear pattern. It's not true of all academics. We know that. There are many credible and uh, honorable exceptions, but it nevertheless, again, expresses the bulk of the cultural norm. Now, what I want to do in my time, the time allotted to me is I don't want to give a praise of the paper. As, what, as I say to my students, if you can't be bothered to read it, then there's no point in me summarizing it for you. Um, what I want to do is to give you one particular example of this, which reflects, in fact, uh, I just deliberately used the opportunity of coming here in order to go and talk to one or two American academics in a particular field I think is very salient, which is being ignored in America, which is military history. And I want to talk a bit about that. And in doing that, I want to take up a point that Michael said to me when he read this paper, and he said, you know, it was a very good paper, but he said there isn't really any individuals mentioned in it. And I have to tell him, not a single one of the people I spoke to wished to be cited, which I thought was, again, and that is very typical of discussion about higher education. It's often very abstract because people don't want to recount true tales. Um, they're worried about litigation. They're worried about being disciplined and whatever. And then at the end, I want to make one or two suggestions, but I have to say I have no brilliant answers, and the suggestions are actually far less easy 
come up with you know, the, the problems. Uh, very briefly, though, before I kick off with the military history, um, the argument in this paper essentially boils down to the fact that there are different problems on either side of the Atlantic. That the prime problem in the United States, as seen by me as an ignorant foreigner, but nevertheless as seen by me, is the various, various manifestations of a sort of liberal orthodoxy, a self-selecting secular priesthood, endorsing and using political correctness in whatever form it falls to. So I think that's the prime problem in, in the United States. The prime problem in Britain, which is very different, is the prime problem in most universities elsewhere in the world, which is state control. And it's a state orthodoxy, it so happens to be the state orthodoxy, similarly is politically correct, similarly uses uh, codes of behavior, similarly tries to create a certain society, uh, but nevertheless, it is the state that is the director of the process in the in most countries in the world, which is not the case in the United States. So there is that contrast, and that contrast we should probe. Anyway, let me just start with military history. The United States is the major military power in the world. It will remain so for our, our lifetimes. We are very aged. Ellie is much younger than the rest of us, but it will remain so for her, her lifetime. As the major military power in the world, it obviously has the problem that uh, is created for any major military power that it uh, wishes to use its military power to engage in and support national interests and exploitation of the international order across the widest possible paradigms. You know, far more so than lesser military powers. You know, Paraguay, the military largely restricts itself to beating up fellow citizens and smuggling and general corruption. Um, the problem of running, of discussing the military in Paraguay is very different to the problem of discussing the military in the United States. Now, what is remarkable is that given the importance to America <coughs> as a power in what is a often a hostile world in which there are many interests and groups in that world that are adverse to American interests, however you define American interests, there are many groups and interests out there that are adverse to American interests, and without in any way necessarily wishing to have war with them, one needs to be politically and militarily robust and resilient in order to best advance one's interests. In order to do that, it is helpful to be informed as to what force can achieve, and also correspondingly problems of using force and what at times force can't be achieved. So in other words, there is a powerful functional reason why the military history and the military politics of the United States should be taught. Okay? It also can be taught, which is again an important aspect <coughs> in any subject, and furthermore, students like to do it. Those courses in the United States, as in Britain, on military history are invariably fully subscribed, and that also draws on a wide public interest in the subject, which you're seeing on your television screens at the present moment with the Ken Burns programmes. Now, what is remarkable is the response in the academy, the jargon term for academics. There are now fewer American programmes in military history, fewer posts in military history than there were 50 years ago, fewer than there were 30 years ago, fewer than there were 10 years ago. This itself has caused comment. There are three recent articles that have appeared on the subject by Victor Davis Hanson, uh, by Mark Brinsley and by John Lynn, uh, each of which, um, you know, beat around the subject and essentially talk a bit about it. They don't really talk very much about particulars for the same reason I was talking about earlier. But each are agreed, these, these are three of the few American military historians around the place, each of them are agreed that they are in a serious and parlous situation. Take, for example, the Ivy Leagues. I am told that in Yale they are unlikely to replace Paul Kennedy or John Gaddis uh, in their subject areas because the, much of the history faculty doesn't like those programs. Uh, in Harvard, they turned down David Kayser, Harvard graduate, very good scholar, for a um, chair like two years ago. Um, in Princeton, they got an endowed chair for military history. What we were talking about earlier, you can use the donors to try and push through a 
and of course they disappointed with us being scored in two. Um, in Wisconsin, they got the Ambrose Heseltine endowed chair, named after Ambrose, you know, Stephen Ambrose. Uh, a lot of people put a lot of money behind that. Of course, Wisconsin conducted a search because they had to do to make sure that the money was secure, and then announced they couldn't find anybody to appoint. Okay, which is a, a great way of start. Ohio State, which is one of the few uh, universities that has a military history program, I'm told by the members of the faculty there who are linked to it that it is very, very difficult to get any posts filled, and indeed they currently have two vacancies there. Uh, going to smaller league places, I was talking to the head of the history department of North Georgia. As you may be aware, or you may not be aware, that the Department of Defense and Georgia have decided that Georgia should be the military education state. Right, that's what they've decided. Well, at North Georgia University, uh, where they would like to have, uh, they have an ROTC program, of course, like a lot of southern colleges, a lot of northern colleges won't have ROTC programs or try and run them down. Um, there is, again, resistance to actually appointing a military historian. I was talking again to the historians at Auburn, exactly the same. Auburn would like to fill a military <coughs> history post, but again, a lot of the historians don't want it. So, in other words, place after place. On your coast, California, it's even worse. Uh, there are very, very, very few military historians on the West Coast. So what one has is a situation that then becomes self-cementing, self-circulating. If you don't have senior people, you can't have graduate programs in that subject. The only places you'll get a military historian is maybe some you know, lesser institution which doesn't have a doctoral program. Then if anybody comes through that program, they're told, well, they're not good enough to get a senior position at a decent university. So it becomes, you know, obviously, in part, this is a reaction against Vietnam, it's the 1960s generation. It's also part and parcel, if, if you're interested in history, part and parcel of a wider rejection of the American past, because although military history is what I'm talking about, there are other aspects of history that have gone to the board. Constitutional history, which used to be a fairly fundamental subject in American universities earlier in the last century, has largely gone into demise, which means one has the astonishing situation that the United States is one of the only countries in the world with a truly historic constitution. Take most states in the world, France or Germany, Japan, all the, you know, Russia, their constitutions are less than 65 years old. Many of them, their constitutions are less than 15 years old. America actually has a constitution which goes back to the late 18th century, which you had far fewer constitutional history specialists than you had 50 years ago. Legal history, another subject that's largely been pushed into the, you know, and obviously you'll all know the legal, I know American legal historians, you'll all know constitutional historians. They are much less salient, much less prominent, much more marginal figures. Same with pre-1815 or 1850 or 1900 diplomatic history. Same to a considerable extent with high political history. Political history that is now in favour is what is known as political culture. It's crowds, you know, that sort of, you know, the Gary Nash account approach to American history. It's that kind of approach because crowds validate what one wants. It is the people who are the key players. That's, that's uh, acceptable. Discourse as a topic is what I call history in the bath, or you would call history in the tub. In other words, you can lie in the tub <coughs> in the hot water and imagine that you are studying discourse. You don't need to do anything so vulgar as to go into an archive and think about it. Discourse <laughs> studies are very prominent. And as John Lynn, I mentioned John Lynn earlier, John Lynn was saying to me, well, he says at Illinois, where you know he's a very senior figure, he said now they won't allow him to sit on appointment committees. He said that in, in Illinois, you could have somebody recently appointed somebody who was an expert on the idea of table legs in the 18th century. And you know, to replace uh, to replace Paul Schroeder, who was one of the great historians of the period. And again, once you get down to names, a lot of prominent historians of the previous generation, John Shy, for example, Paul Schroeder, Gunter Rotten, both have been replaced by people who are discourse specialists 
in which those universities have taken out lines in political history or military history and replaced them with lines in social history. So the problem is very apparent at the level of the academics. No two, no two ways about it. At the level of the students, there is what this curious business that the students got all worked up about in the 1960s about things they could do very little to have any real role in, you know, the outside world, government policy. Uh, students have shown astonishingly little interest in what has actually happened within their own university in terms of the content of teaching. If you wish to be frank, you can generally get students to demonstrate if rents are put up 2%, what's the price of food is put up 3%. You can very rarely get students to protest if lines that they might have wanted to do or course where they're told courses are not no longer offered in that sort of area. They seem to be completely oblivious to that sort of thing. Uh, so that's an issue. Uh, we were talking about donors. Donors probably, trustees probably in the United States are the only way to, to, to exert power. I suppose if you were looking ahead for the long term, it's one of the things I say in my program, <coughs> in my paper, if you're looking ahead in the long term at the global level, I think higher education will become more democratic because in price terms, universities are too expensive. For the average punter, universities are too expensive, their parents are too expensive, and when the, you know, the age of economic expansion is going, the real prices are high, and you've got all these expensive academics to pay for. Academics feel underpaid, but nevertheless, most universities have you know, quite a few hundred, and big universities have quite a few thousand of them, and they all cost money, and they all have high social welfare costs. So in the end, the probable way that you're going to get out of this on the world scale is much more teaching in a way that we don't like, and that we regard as reprehensible, namely through the internet. It is likely that the internet and internet and distance learning will drive down the cost and create two very different patterns of higher education. Higher education, and of course as you know a lot of American degrees are already being done over the internet, I take it you know that. Um, that the, the, uh, it's likely that you'll have two very different patterns of higher education, and it is possible that this will create two very different political nexuses, that people who will go to, as it were, liberal art places, which fancy themselves as great sense bastions of liberal values, um, and residentially so, and have a nice time, sort of middle-class holiday camps, in which one group, is a middle uh, one group is on holiday just spouting their own values at the top, and the other group are on holiday not working very hard, whilst the rest in higher education are actually probably doing distance learning courses or internet courses in which they're adding them on at the same time that they are at work. And if we're probably looking at this at the world scale, that is probably what is going to happen. Whether that creates opportunities for conservative academics or not, I simply don't know, because it's very unclear who is going to run and police the digital um, internet systems of higher education. At the present moment, obviously, the bulk of the providers are within the United States, it's where the demand is highest. Um, what we don't know is whether state systems elsewhere will allow international provision of, of degrees in this fashion, or whether they'll try and enforce rigid state provision, with the state provision being determined to push through the values of that given political organisation. So, last point, sorry, I know I'm going to great rate, but I don't want to take up everybody's time. Last point, as, a, as an historian, this to me is important because I'm increased, increasingly mindful, I've got a book coming out with Michael next year called The Curse of, the, the Curse of History, in which I essentially argue that, in a way, we live in a world in which many people, um, you don't have to just think of fanatics like Mr. Bin Laden, but many people have historicized grievances through which they empower themselves. History serves as a form 
of validating of their demands for um, power, their demands for recompense, their demands, um, their, their sense of aggravation. And in a way, the, uh, it's not easy to contest that, the easiest way to contest it is to ignore it, but it doesn't hurt to take up the point that Herb was talking about earlier, to have a form of propaganda is the wrong word, but information that is different. And in a way, the informed study of history as a form of the subject of humane um, skepticism, not cynicism, not cynicism, but humane skepticism, which takes these meta-narratives, these existential strategies of demand, the, whether they're thousand-year reichs or the, reborn, the rebirth of the Caliphate or whatever, and says, well, actually, no, that wasn't what happened. This is much more complicated. You are wrong. Actually performs a quite valuable public function, and it would be a great pity if that was completely lost because of liberal fantasies. Thank you very much. trustees hadn't probably been giving in hell. He would have probably said, well, we're welcome to see Colombia as the center of world debate, right. and here is President Iran. Right. Bang. Right. And, and I, I think even if it only plays a minor role, they need some pressure on them these days. No, I, I agree. I agree. Well, let's... Uh, 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 <coughs> very interesting, Jeremy. I just have one quick comment. I think that the academics are beginning to follow Some uh, 
change in the, in the, uh, the ideological climate? Okay, that's a very good question. I mean, the difficulty at the present moment is each generation appoints its successors. So the people who were young in the 60s are now heads of departments, and those people are appointing, as it were, the next generation. Now, they, they largely replicate themselves. There are changes. I mean, for example, if you look at what the old left was, which was very dominant in, say, the 1950s in some places, and those people went on to the 80s or the 90s, the old left was very interested in um, Marxist ideas, uh, and they were very interested in material culture. And you know, in so, so the classic in history is economic history. The idea that people are fundamentally motivated by their economic interests was very dominant on the left, and was therefore very dominant in higher education. That's been replaced by the new left, which very much is in favour not of the idea of people being motivated by their economic interests and their relationships with the means of production, but instead being motivated by discourses, discourses gender discourses of race, discourses of sexuality, etc., etc., etc. So the discourses are the, the great thing now. Now, it's very difficult. You see, um, I, I recently was sitting on an appointment committee of the odd man out, very much the odd man out, and um, they had an oral historian there. And I said to him, well, you know, I said to him, don't you think in 50 years' time people are going to be rather dubious of this as a method? You know, the idea that we can understand the past by oral record. And he said, no, no, no. He said, we will, you know, as it were, we will mould the next generation of thinkers. And that, in a sense, is what they try to do. Conservatives, the problems with conservatives are multiple. One of them, of course, is that bright conservatives don't often go into higher education. Bright conservatives look at this and they think, this is horrible. You know, this is horrific. Um, the bright conservatives often want to go into business or government or law or other activities. Um, so there is a certain degree of self-selection. There's a certain degree of self-selection through the kind of students that get favoured in the educational process. If you were to write an essay or a paper taking some views, I dare say if you did a blind math marking test on what got favoured and what didn't get favoured, you'd find that left-wing opinions are much more favoured within the system than others. Tenure itself is not the issue. It really isn't the issue. I mean, I remember meeting Mrs Thatcher for a conversation at the time that she was just about to get rid of tenure and Theresa May announced. And, you know, she said to me, well, we're getting rid of tenure, that's going to improve the universities. And I said to her, you know, with due respect, and I said, I don't think it would. I said, the universities are still going to be run by the academics. You know, the, uh, what I actually told her was going to happen was, which it turned out to be the case, although I wasn't to know, I'd be right, um, that um, instead of getting rid of bad people, which is what she wanted to happen, and then have a whole host of new appointments, as it were, new appointments reflecting 1980s values, what actually happened is we had virtually no appointments in British universities between 1980 and the beginning of the 90s. So we had a lost generation. So in other words, the absence of tenure was not, the removal of tenure was not followed by getting rid of people who weren't up to the job. Unless you have a body that can do that, whether tenure is there or not is neither here nor there. Um, and I do, I, I mean, I think that tenure makes American academics more irresponsible, yes. Uh, I mean, obviously it'd be better off without it, but getting rid of tenure per se is not gonna solve the problem of a left-wing secular priesthood that fancies itself as communing with eternal values and despises the society that it is uh, located in. That's not true of all academics, that's true of a lot of them. Oddly enough, uh, tenure, I think, protects the conservatives on campus. It does, mm -hmm. yes. I think that, I mean, I'm in a more vulnerable position than if I would be in the United States, definitely. point that I've made on many different occasions that you can't caricature what's happening in American higher education. Uh, Peter wrote a very good piece in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Jim has been involved in a program at the Manhattan Institute. There's an awful lot that's been done. Of course, Roger wrote that explosion of the untenured radicals. One of the things that I think just has to be understood is the nature of the university superstructure. I think you're getting at this from the last point that you made. 
Because when you get a program that's created like feminist studies, for example, it's not a question of reading Jane Austen, it's a matter of expression. Once that expression is created, and then you have the successor generation obviously being selected by the people who are in, in, uh, in influential positions at the moment, it's very difficult to stop this because now you have journals that are created. People write for those journals. I mean, in feminist studies, for example, and I'm not making this up, there was a journal that was called Clitoral Hermeneutics. <laughs> uh, I mean, even, even if I tried to make it up, I don't think it would be creative. Uh, and, and, the, and then you write for clitoral hermeneutics, and then, of course, you get a tenured position. So the superstructure obviously accounts for this. There are two other points that I would like to make. One about the military history. Military history isn't really military history anymore in the United States. It's largely a question of social dimensions of warfare. Yes. It has relatively little to do with wars, battles, who fought. Yeah. It, 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 that, that's a, it's a new discipline. Right. You look at Janowitz, for example, yeah. who was yeah. perhaps yeah. The, arguably the most famous person in the military history complex. And he is, uh, he's a sociologist. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he, is, he is very highly regarded. The study that of warfare has really been converted into the study of peace, so-called peace studies, which has something to do with conflict resolution, but by and large it's a psychology discipline that has nothing at all to do with the study of history or warfare. And the last point I would make, I have a somewhat different view of the technical developments that have occurred and what is happening in internet education. While you're quite right, it's not at all clear who will control these, uh, these forces online, the, the digital revolution that we are now living with. It's also true that people like Bill Bennett, David Gelertner, Victor Davis Hanson are teaching courses yes. online. Yes. And it is possible for us to play a very significant role in what has now become a new and emerging university system. It is a parallel university system. Sorry to use, sorry to use Trotskyite language, but it's a parallel yes. system yes. that could be, it could be taken over by our side. There is a real opportunity at the moment. You do not have to invest an awful lot of money in new buildings and, uh, and all of the, the superstructure. You don't need a football team, but you could put together a first-rate program on the internet. And while I think you're correct in asserting that there's very little that's been done so far, there are some people who are working in this area, and it does represent an interesting opportunity for our side. I agree with you, and, and crucially, it's consumer-driven. It's consumer-driven, and given that the bulk of the consumers do not share the values of many of these left liberals, then I think that's very helpful. Two additional points. You're absolutely right on the, so many of the military historians, I mean, Jay Winter at Yale, for example, his form of expertise is cemeteries. You know, in other words, memorializing the dead after World War One. Well, that's about as close, you know, I mean, that's the, I'll just very briefly, and this will take a couple of minutes, um, I, I will tell you my, my great encounter with America's culture wars. One of the books I've written is on the politics of James Bond. And in 19, and as I mentioned to a couple of people last night, in, in um, 2003, I was invited to the University of Indiana to give the wrap-up lecture at a big conference on James Bond, the novels of James Bond, because that's where the Fleming papers are. I, I was given an hour and a half to, and I decided I'd speak on changing images of America in the Bond corpus, because I'd never written, never given that paper, hitherto. But I had an hour and a half long time, so I thought I'd spend the first five minutes reviewing what we'd heard hitherto. And I said, well, we'd heard papers that were history papers, in a very nice, relaxed voice, papers that were history papers and history that uh, papers for cultural <coughs> studies. And they were both good. The problem was with each of the history papers needed a much greater sense of chronological specificity because the Cold War meant different things and different people and stuff and so on. And I said, as far as cultural studies are concerned, I said, um, you know, unless one could really show that they were an important part of either the readership or the plots, and they're only really important in the Marin, the minor way in one, one novel, Diamonds of Forever, and Nick Slackman, Goldfinger, there's no, what's the point of offering lesbian readings of James Bond? Whereupon the sky fell in on me. I was <laughs> accusing, I was, and I, I hadn't meant to be offensive. If I wished to be offensive, I'd be offensive, but I hadn't meant to be offensive. 
I, I, what was interesting though was to listen to these papers of the inside those two. I mean, there was one paper by somebody at home told us a rising star already had a tenure, already had a full chair at the University of Indiana, and this, this proposed that the, um, the the central theme in the James Bond novels were male fears of homosexual rape. There was another. There was another paper. There was another paper on uh, post-colonialism and man with the golden gun, the film, not the novel. And it set up as the proposition that the film was all about the anxieties of Britain in a post-colonial age. And, and I said, well, you know, I actually made a point. I said, you know, the opening sequence is in Hong Kong, then there's a sequence in Macau, then the whole of the rest of the film is set in Thailand, um, apart from the very last scene off the South China coast. So the one thing about Thailand is it was never colonized. Whereupon the man said to me, no, 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 you're completely wrong, it's set in Hong Kong. And I said, I've never been to, uh, to uh, Thailand, but there, there are many canals, there's this long chase on the canals. He said, no, it's the canals of Hong Kong. Well, of course, he's wrong, it's set in Thailand. But the point is, it is believing what you want to believe is absolutely crucial in this discourse state. There is no sense of intellectual integrity because that, in a way, um, if you believe in a kind of postmodernism in which texts can mean exactly wish you, what you wish to endow upon them, then therefore what you are teaching the young is that literally to have a belief in known values is a key element of intellectual uh, intellectual strength. That is deeply, de deeply dangerous and very depressing. Very depressing. Th this, uh, this lady from Indiana, she, she wasn't called uh, Karma Walking by any chance, was it? She was one of the ones there, yeah. I mean, there were a whole host the of professor of English whose research uh, uh, interests include gay and lesbian studies, queer mysticism, yeah. kayaking. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing, you know. For there to be canals in Hong Kong, water would have to run uphill. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, yes. I, I just wanted to go back to the beginning, uh, because this brings up those movies. But <laughs> why are you pessimistic about Sedona? Yeah, this ask Roger first, because he knows more about Oh, the well, I just, I, she, for one of the reasons that uh, Jeremy mentioned, Born in the poverty, but I was looking into this. How rich uh, all, all American schools are. I mean, they, they forget about Harvard with thirty-three billion dollars and however many billions of Princeton and Yale have. A, a tiny place like Hamilton College, the place that is happy to invite Annie Sprinkle to address them about the proper use of sex toys, or as you know, as, as Susan Rosenberg, the the weatherman who was let out of prison on Bill Clinton's last day, or Ward Churchill. Those people are fine. Somebody tries to start a uh, Alexander Hamilton Center. Well, forget it. We can't have that here. You know, and this this tiny college with 1,200 students has an endowment of 770 million dollars. So that means they don't care what what the what their donors think. I mean, people could stop giving to them tomorrow. Uh, to, you know, completely, and it wouldn't make any difference at all. So I and as far as trustees go, I mean, um, I mean, what's what's happening in Dartmouth right now? I think is, is a, a case in point. Um, you know. Trustees have totally, in many places, um, uh, they've never actually assumed uh, real responsibility for the, for the institution. They're, they sit on the boards because it's, it's thought to be um, a, uh, a kind of social, because of the social cachet of it. They give a lot of money to the, uh, to the, to the institution. The institution honors them by uh, putting them on the board, and they have a few parties um, uh, a year, which they call board meetings, and uh, everything is terrific uh, all, all the time in the campus. Whatever the administration wants them to do, they say that's terrific. What the administration wants them to do is what the faculty, the activists left wing faculty, tell them to do. So this kind of curious, uh, you know, thing where you have um, a, 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 an activist left wing faculty and a sort of stolid 
uh, authoritarian administration coming together. And so you have these two things uh, perpetuating, uh, perpetuating this uh, bad status quo. And uh, what to do about that? They regard us as alarmists when we say these things. It's very difficult to make the case in ways they would believe in. It's not true in all cases, but among most, many, most of these wealthy people, they want to believe the best of Argentina. If I can go back, I'm going to add a historical parallel. It's interesting if you think about it, to look at universities in the 1930s. If you look at British universities in the 1930s, only a minority of students were politically active. No doubt about that. And the majority of sportsmen. You know, most students were men. Sport was absolutely central. But the problem was that those minority who were politically active were overwhelmingly on the left. You know, most famously, of course, in the Oxford Union debate, which Hitler was very excited about, you know, that they wouldn't fight the king and country. And this is the problem. I have no doubt at all that if you went around American campuses today, you would find that many students are exactly as I said at the outset. They're not all that influenced by their college. By their, they don't necessarily do the reading or listen to the lectures. They're more concerned about
to make them do that, Thomas Mendel, the philosopher, who wrote a book called The View from Nowhere. And that title sticks in my mind because that's where academics are located. They do not wish to be located in the United States or Great Britain or anywhere else. They want to be in the view from nowhere, which is uh, innocent, morally impeccable, immaculate, and terrific. Yes, English for you, English for you. Yeah, I mean, this transnationalism, I mean, I, yes. I, I, can, I can see this. I mean, there's obviously an issue that is very salient in the minds of Americans, quite rightly salient in the minds of Americans, is policy, European policy towards the Middle East. And I can see this very clearly. Um, my, which, uh, obviously, uh, Dan was going to be talking about, my university has a Middle Eastern centre, um, quite a big one, because it's funded by the NEA Charger to get a PhD from it. Um, actually, my university is also the one my, uh, my and I don't think there's any doubt that the combination of external Arab money um, and left-wing academics pushes the thing in that direction. And I can tell you that even uh, even we're, you know we're in, I'm in history. I'm not in Middle Eastern studies, but I saw this very clearly because we have a, ancillary departments down campus down in Cornwall, which we're just developing, and they uh, interviewed for a second chair there. And one of the people that applied for it was one of these Israeli revisionists, a man called Pate, who's made his money in life by, you know, damning his fellow compatriots. And what on earth he wants to live in Cornwall, I have no idea. <laughs> but anyway, that goes without saying. Anyway, um, I, of course, wasn't put on the appointments committee because I'm a prominent Tory, but I said <laughs> to the head of the school, Lily in Montalivia, I said, there is no way you should appoint this man unless you can be absolutely convinced of his scholarship. All right? I said, I did, I did Tory politics, but obviously I, other people approved of politics. That's not So it's very interesting to see that, and you know, it's very difficult to actually find out in most cases the kind of factors that affect academic appointment. There are even more problems, of course, in the case of the United States, where because the, take, the period of time in which a line takes to be filled is much longer than in Britain, so the politicking is much more intense. You know, in Britain, we generally move from uh, advertisements and filling the job within six weeks, so you've got a maximum of six weeks politicking. In America, the politicking often lasts a year. Um, and what that does is to, but again, it's very rare that it comes to the open air. It's very rare to find out who was turned down for jobs. Very, very difficult to find out who was turned down for jobs, particularly senior jobs. And in a way, these characters emerge as if they are sort of chosen, immutably perfect. You know, that Cleo has descended from the sky and taken by the hand of this person and led them to the sunlight up lands of Harvard or Yale or Cambridge or Oxford or whatever. And in fact, it's often a dirty little political job, as you know, as we'd expect. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with dirty little political jobs. That's how lots of things get filled. But what is wrong with this in universities is un universities are laying claim to a greater sanction on the basis of the fact that they're supposedly meritocratic. Yeah. So in other words, they conform to the values of a certain world of left-wing machine politics and, and uh, state intervention. But whilst they're claiming a greater moral authority, which they then use as a right to have persuasion over the young. And that is what is wrong. It's another form of child molestation, which are molesting the mind <laughs> instead of the body, <laughs> though some of them molest the body as well. Peter. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I blame you all. I, uh, I just had one humble point to make, but the conversation's been so rich right now, I want to make several, including a, a, throwing some background about this fellow, uh, Pate, James Damon Israel, 
because uh, he advised a, a master's thesis, which is usually 97 out of 100, for arguing that there had been a massacre uh, by Israelis of Arabs in a little village outside Haifa. Just two weeks ago. In Tanqura. Yeah. Uh, in 1947 or 1948, the, uh, the, the captain, or the commander of the troops that yeah. originally committed the, uh, committed the atrocities, committed the massacres, took the master's thesis writer to court. The court found on behalf of the commander there was no evidence that a massacre had occurred. In defense of the student, uh, Professor Tucker said, to, to the press, the publication, um, he deserves this grade because while no massacre may have occurred there, other massacres undoubtedly did occur. And so it was effectively true. Fake but accurate uh, yeah. senior thesis. Was this a judicial judgment? The, the initial was a judicial that. judgment. The captain sued, or the yeah. commander yeah. sued yeah. for um, for whatever it was, libel or slander. But that comment, yeah. that comment, oh, without the, a message. Oh, no, no, that was, that was uh, something that Papi made after it's what, when yeah. he was asked by reporters, I are you not ashamed for writing such a thesis? Yeah. And he said, no, in fact, he effectively proved that. But are you aware of the fact that the Papi's statement is now incorporated into books in Israel used by Arab students? Yeah. And Which is really uh, uh, outrageous. Right, it shows how, right. Um, I, I want to comment on uh, also uh, uh, a seeming paradox Students who take classes, proper classes in military history, love them, and yet uh, uh, they're, they're signed up to, uh, to the maximum, and yet students are indifferent to students when, when good classes are removed and classes on 18th century tableware are, uh, are unstable, unstated, are placed in. And uh, why is that? And I think one of the reasons is that um, n not only that um, young people get less education from their families, but um, Students, by the time they arrive in college, actually by the time they graduate from college, actually no longer have any idea of what proper education would look like. The idea that knowledge is cumulative, an obvious understanding that if you'd like to understand American history, it'd be useful to know some modern European history, and if you want to understand modern European history, it'd be useful to understand some medieval history, and so on, uh, so on back. This is purged from students' minds by the kinds of education they get. Um, so, I, uh, so it's no wonder that on the one hand, students still being relatively fresh kindle to a class that's a class about real things. Um, and yet, when they're deprived of it, don't really understand what they're missing. Um, another point is uh, commented upon, uh, you raised and Phil uh, responded to it on likely consequences for conservatives of the rise of internet education. Um, th there are obviously grave problems with it, but there, there is a cause to be um, reason to be optimistic. And the same reason I think that um, the rise of the internet, at least in the short term, has actually worked uh, significantly <coughs> for the advantage of conservatives. Because the inter as far as communication goes, the internet especially empowers those who don't Similarly, at the, at the university, it gives conservatives a voice, a, a medium, an opportunity for communication lacking. A student doesn't need to go to the internet to hear uh, 
more left liberal interpretations of view. But you can now, and compared to, and I was had this treatment, Still remain, still represent the most promising opportunity. Now, the pro most prom promising opportunity may be bleak, but it's less bleak than the other avenues available. Can I just add very quickly on the financial side? Outside the United States, which obviously is very rich and is able to borrow a lot of money, I imagine that a lot of university systems elsewhere in the world are really going to creep badly over the next 20, 30 years because simply they bought into physical plants so many of them in the 1960s. That physical plant is on its way out, and most of the time they can't afford to replace it. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of unhappiness, disquiet about the actual experience of going to university across much of the world, including in my own country. And I imagine what is going to happen is that is going the real cost of being away from home, which is really the idea of spending three years away from home, often only able to have casualised jobs where you are there, is going to encourage a lot of people to feel I'd rather get on the job start a proper job and do a degree as I'm going along on the internet. And I think you're right that I think it is an opportunity, I think Herb is right, it is an opportunity um, that there are um, lots of ways in which existing power structures and academic reputation will be short-circuited as they deserve to be short-circuited because you know, I think that is that is really important. And in a way, if you think about in issues, you know, things like the New Criterion and Social Affairs Group and other bodies, in the sense they are producing high-grade material, both publications and I Do you think that is? Well, John, if you don't mind, I, 
have an answer to that, and that's the labeling effect. Uh, when uh, my daughter was at a private school here in New York, the first question that was addressed to the people who were responsible for their placement in colleges <coughs> was, what are the chances of my son getting into Harvard? Well, he's 13 years old. How, how can <laughs> anyone possibly know? It was an absurd question. But it's the labeling that is so important. And for parents, it has relatively little to do with the education they receive, but rather this, this sense that there's prestige associated with some institutions that do not exist in others. Okay, can I just take that up one, one way? Because I think it's really to the great credit of this body um, and to Wade Rogers doing this. When I speak as American academics down there, what happens is it's not at all like this. What happens is you get introduced, you know, here is so and so, so and so. He was the J. Biggs III chair in so and so and so and so at Harvard. He has had the J. Biggs II chair and visiting professor of so and so and so and so there. And has also been, you know, and the point is that the idea is that the title and the institution validates the opinion. Now, what Roger is doing is, and Mike is, is exactly right. It is saying what we're concerned with is the quality of the ideas, the ability of the person to offer an exposition of them, which is one of the new criteria for Christian emphasis on good quality writing. And we are not, as it were, validating an idea by the institution it is presented by. You know, the Oxford ranking of the, those things. That's excellent. It's not the way academics behave. And academics, there is this, academics are, as it were, complicit in this parental system of ranking institutions. And just as the parents try and move their children up a system, of course, they've invested in that particular university. The last thing they want anybody to think is that it's anything other than perfect. <laughs> well, you know, so exactly the same with the academics. They're, they're, they've got a system of self-aggrandizement as well. Anyway. Dome of the Rock. This was the place on Temple Mount in Jerusalem whence Muhammad was, according to the Quran, taken up into heaven and the golden shrine which was built there in 691 by Caliph Abd al-Malik is the earliest and most elegant example of Muslim architecture extant. Non-Muslims are not permitted to visit the dome today, but since last year they have been readmitted to the Temple Mount, the noble sanctuary of Muslims that's, of course, due to the Israeli government. It's not nothing to do with the uh, local imams who don't want any non-Muslims there. In the last generation, the whole situation in Jerusalem has changed. Muslim leaders and scholars now routinely deny that the Temple of Solomon ever even existed in Jerusalem. And the Christian population of the old city has fallen from more than half to less than 10%, the rest driven up by Muslim persecution. Back in 1977, when I was there, non-Muslims still allowed not only onto the Temple Mount, but inside the dome too. At the time, I was studying the history of the Crusades, and I had some grasp of the significance of Jerusalem to medieval Muslims, such as Saladi, who promised that after he had recaptured Jerusalem, he would, quote, cross this sea to their Christian islands to pursue them until there remains no one on the face of the earth who does not acknowledge Allah, or I die, in the affirmative. What I did not understand was that for many, most Muslims, this view had not altered one jot in the eight intervening centuries. The reconquest of Jerusalem for Islam is seen as a necessary prelude to the destruction of the state of Israel 
version of Christmas. The dome is a simple enclosure, entirely built and decorated by Byzantine Christians, uh, but its non-figurative images of paradise are already authentic to Islam. They are accompanied by verses from the Quran with a warning against the Christian doctrines of the divinity of Christ and the Trinity. Quote, the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was not only a messenger of Allah, was only a messenger of Allah. So believe in Allah and his messengers and do not say three. Refrain, it is better for you. As the Byzantine historian Judith Herrick comments, this monument symbolizes the decisive shift of power and religious observance in the Near East. It is a shift that neither the Byzantines nor the Crusades could reverse, and the Islamization of Africa, Asia, and Europe continues to this day. After they took Jerusalem back, the Crusaders wrongly imagined that the Dome of the Rock was, was the Temple of Solomon, as the Round Templar churches all over Europe testified. But the differences between the Dome and the real Temple symbolized the clash of civilizations. Beautiful as it is, the Dome stands as a trophy of victory. Its sacred relic, Mohammed's Rock, is almost incidental to its function as a monument to the triumph of Islam over Judaism and Christianity. Its inscriptions differ little in their propagandist purpose from the video of Osama bin Laden. This is jihad, frozen in marble and mosaic. The magnificence of Solomon's temple served quite another purpose. For the people of Israel, this was the house where God himself dwelt. The functions of these two buildings are as far apart as war and peace. From its very inception, Islam has defined itself by what it is against. It divides the world into two camps those who submit to the will of Allah, the Muslims, and the rest who are presumed to be damned, including the other peoples of the book, as one British imam told Muslims in his Birmingham mosque. Those whom the wrath of Allah is upon is the Jew and the Christian. Interestingly, the West Midlands police show less interest in prosecuting the <coughs> than in complaining to the TV regulator about the Channel 4 programme dispatches, which had seen Thereby. The only hope for the non-Muslims is conversion, an irrevocable decision that reflects the existential gulf between the inhabitants of the two metaphysical abodes, the earthly equivalents of heaven and hell, the house of Islam and the house of war. Muslims <coughs> cannot leave the house of Islam for another faith with impunity. As a recent dispatches program shows, even in Britain, such apostates live in fear of their lives. Islam is a faith that demands unconditional allegiance. Muslims must be ready to kill or be killed if necessary for their faith. Sharia, the law of Islam, takes precedence over all other laws. Likewise, jihad, the war in Islam, takes precedence over all other wars. Other wars, in fact, are not legitimate at all. When confronted by these stark, unchanging ordinances, the equivocations of supposedly liberal Islamic scholars, such as Terence Ramadan, tell their own story. Nothing that mere men say can ameliorate or mitigate a code handed down unaltered from 7th century Arabia. These two characteristics of Islam, its immutability and the fact that it defines itself against the rest of humanity, help to explain its extraordinary appeal to angry young men and women. They find refuge in the moral certainties and self-justification that other religions, especially Christianity and Judaism, no longer seem because Islam has no hierarchy, every Muslim may submit to an Islamic authority of his own choosing. That choice is likely to be driven as much by political considerations 
and purely religious. There is no conceptual separation between religion and politics, however. A few Muslim scholars who interpret the Quran according to the hermeneutic principles that govern modern biblical scholarship are shunned by the literalist majority and enjoy little influence in the madrasas and universities of the Muslim world. But even in Western countries, the version of Islam that is taught is usually fundamental. The result is that in Britain, nearly half of the mosques are controlled by the extremist Deobandi movement of Pakistan Bangladesh and India, while many more are under equally fundamental Wahhabi or Salafi influence in Saudi Arabia. While all Muslims certainly do not subscribe to all the tenets of Islam, enough of them do to make it virtually impossible for the, for the dissenters' voices to be heard. How should conservatives respond to this confusion? I don't know the answer, and I'm not sure that the notion of a correct response to anything as complex as a religion is a very conservative idea. Until quite recently, most people in the West felt no particular need to have any response to Islam, and so any response they do have is bound to be quite personal. I respond to Islam, therefore, not only as a political animal, but as a, as a product of a particular history and a particular civilization. I respond to Islam as a citizen of a liberal democracy in which religious toleration is a given, in which church and state occupy distinct spheres, and religious traditions or doctrines have no force of law freedom of speech includes the right to criticize the government or even to insult its founder, and in which personal autonomy under the rule of law implies the non-culpability of heresy or apostasy. I respond as a neighbor who objects to the presence in my community of those who repay my hospitality by preaching or practicing or excusing terrorist violence. The most notorious of them all in, in Britain, Sheikh Abu Hamza, lived in my London street until he was arrested, tried, and convicted I respond as a father and a husband with certain views about how girls should be educated, how women should be treated in marriage, and so on. Finally, I respond to Islam as an adherent of another faith, and specifically as a Christian who wishes to live in peace with other faiths, but not at any price, and who observes the harsh fate of his fellow believers in countries that were once heartlands of Christendom with alarm and anger. No less integral to my faith is a special reverence for the Jewish people elder brothers, whom Christians have often treated with such base ingratitude, and hence my response to Islam cannot be divorced from my dismay at the most destructive of the many consequences of jihad, the revival of anti-Semitism, not just in the Muslim world, but in the West too. All these responses are personal, but they are also not untypical. They've emerged over the years as part of a growing, inescapable awareness the unique antagonism between Muslims and their neighbors. My, my natural disposition to exculpate Islam from responsibility for failing to exist has given way to doubts, doubts about whether there is something intrinsic to the theological structure of Islam that is inimical to the delicate membrane of moral law and rational order, deriving ultimately from the Hebrew prophets and the Greek philosophers that lies at the core of Western civilization. Islam is often spoken of one of the three Abrahamic religions. And Muhammad himself, in the earlier, less belligerent phase of Islam, used to speak of Jews and Christians as keepers of the book. Unlike Jews and Christians, however, who despite their orthodoxy, were always open to every possible external influence, Muslims have been moving steadily in the opposite direction for nearly a thousand years, turning their backs on the modern world, and indeed seeking to reverse the verdict of history 
on the medieval empires of the Arabs and the Turks. After centuries of domination, they found themselves poorer, less educated, and hence less powerful than the infidels they despised. Muslims had become the people of the closed book. It is the radicalism of Islam that makes it so threatening today. Whether or not Islam is necessarily a radical religion, one constantly returns to its roots. Empirically, its history is one long sequence of such radical revivals. In the vocabulary of the left, radical is good, and Islam has always held an attraction for liberals with a hankering for the terrible simplicity of a revolutionary faith. E.M. Forster, whose response to Hitler was to offer two cheers for democracy, adored the radical simplicity of that Islam. Admittedly, he encountered it mainly in the, in the relatively benign form that prevailed when much of the Muslim world was under British rule, a dispensation that the left destroyed with the premature independence and partition of India after the ground had been prepared by novels such as The Passage to India. Much of the political ideology of Islamism emerged during the retreat from empire, a retreat which was accompanied by the wholesale abdication of what Kipling naively called the white man's burden which the United States still today acknowledges as the thankless task of encouraging freedom and democracy. Until quite recently, Islam seemed to be a warrior creed that was singularly short of warriors. Not anymore. But there is still an inferiority complex fueled by a large dose of the victim culture that the West cultivates so assiduously. Having ostentatiously rejected the decadence of the Islam has in practice absorbed some of its most insidious vices. The fact that Islam never developed a capitalist work ethic and enjoined almsgiving to the rich rather than uh, enjoined to the rich almsgiving rather than self-reliance to the poor has enabled radical Muslim preachers to move seamlessly from oriental despotism to occidental welfare state, living comfortably on the tithes of the faithful and the taxes of the infant. But the process works the other way too. Western culture has always included among its various currents the iconoclasm that was once Islam's most visible challenge to Christianity. One need only think of the Reformation. Still, the dominant tradition in the West has always been a figurative, iconographic narrative art until the rise of abstract and conceptual modernism in the late 20th century. This was, of course, an indigenous movement, but it had much in common with Islamic art, not least the fact that, like all forms of iconoclasm, its ideology defines itself by what it is against. And so we have the strange spectacle of aging 60s radicals aligned with Muslims who preach radicalism of a rather more sanguinary sort. When Karl-Heinz Stockhausen greeted the destruction of the Twin Towers as the greatest work of art imaginable in the cosmos, his effusions were seen by conservatives as the reductio ad absurdum of a generation that fulfilled its self-appointed destiny by the deconstruction of entire traditions of Western culture. But Stockhausen was also unwittingly endorsing Islamic iconoclasm, symbolized not only in Al-Qaeda's attack on the Manhattan skyline, but in the Taliban's dynamiting of colossal Buddhas. There can be few more potent symbols of Western civilization than Cologne Cathedral built on the site of the eponymous colony of Colonia, where the Roman world confronted the barbarians beyond the Rhine. This was the shrine of the three wise men from the east, conceived on a vast scale 
left unfinished for five centuries, the erection of its western facade became the national project of German romanticism. Now the cathedral's two great Gothic towers are to be challenged by the minarets of a new mosque to serve the 120,000 Muslims of Cologne. The Cardinal Archbishop, Joachim Meister, admitted to an uneasy feeling at the prospect of the mosque. That was controversial enough. But the cathedral's new stained glass window by Gerhard Richter, Germany's best-known living artist, has given a fascinating new twist to the story. Commissioned to replace a 19th century window destroyed in the war, Richter came up with a computer-generated abstract design. Nothing Christian about it at all. <laughs> but Cardinal Meissner refused to attend the unveiling ceremony. It belongs in a mosque or another house of prayer, not this one, he declared. The point to remember is that Richter and Meissner are both of the same generation, but their experience is utterly different. Richter is a former, uh, is a, is a, Former 1968 radical. Meissner is an East German who spent 40 years resisting the communists. The one preached Nazism and the other one supplemented it. In modern Germany, even a cardinal archbishop is not master of his own cathedral, and his preference for a figurative depiction of the two saints who fell victim to the Nazis, Judith Stein and Maximilian Kolbe, was overruled. The cardinal hit back in a sermon which denounced degenerate modern art. Of course, a notorious phrase associated with the Nazi exhibition of 1937. In the hullabaloo that followed this breaking of a 70-year taboo, Meissner's point, quote, where culture is detached from religion and reverence for God, there religion shrivels into ritualism and culture degenerates. That was all he meant. Um, it was, of course, completely drowned out. But if Cologne Cathedral is, is ever turned into a mosque, not inconceivable, I think, nowadays, the Richter window is the one artifact that may be allowed to remain. This is not an absurd thought. After all, Napoleon's armies used this same cathedral for stable their horses, and St. Sophia's Basilica in, in Constantinople, once the greatest church in Europe, was a mosque for nearly 500 years until Ataturk secularized it. The combined threats of modern secular culture and militant Islam mean that the fate of Christianity in Europe does indeed hang in the balance. I have already suggested that the resurgence of Islam has coincided with a renewed threat to Jews everywhere, and the Jewish communities in Europe in particular. Hostility to Jews is not, of course, a uniquely Muslim phenomenon, but neither is it true, as Muslims sometimes claim, that anti-Semitism was alien to Islam until Zionism creation of the State of Israel poisoned relations between the two. Anyone who doubts that the tendency of Muslims to blame Jews for their misfortunes has been around for a long time should read Niccolo Capone's account of the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, uh, an outstanding example of military history, by the way, uh, but not, of course, from Britain or America. It's also a very nice photo. Uh, right. Well, uh, I, I think our, our students would, would benefit a lot from, from reading about Anyway, um, of course, they had never taught either Chesterton's great poem at that time, in English, that is. Anyway, Capone quotes a, a description of what happened when news of the greatest naval defeat ever suffered by the Ottomans reached the court of Sultan Selim II. Jews in Constantinople sent word to Venice that for three nights the Sultan had kept in the dark until eventually he demanded to know the truth. Quote, 
It was answered that it was impossible now to hide the news, that his fleet had all been burnt, sunk, and taken by the Christians, with the death of all his great soldiers, captains, and his general. Hearing this, he gave a great sigh and said, So, these treacherous Jews have deceived me. It was the Christians, of course, who believed him, but it was the Jews that got the blame. And having the Lord's utterance spread through the palace and the streets, everyone started shouting, Death to the Jews, death to the Jews. There's much fear this would be generated into a general massacre. The only, unquote, the only thing that has changed since is that the twisted logic of the scapegoat enables Muslims now to blame the Jews not only for their defeats by the Christians, but also for terrorist attacks perpetrated by Muslims. You, you know, they are blamed even for things like 9-11. European Islam has not yet, it seems, absorbed the fact that after 1945, the new Europe's moral foundation was supposedly promise to the Jewish people never again. By contrast, Jews have taken the lead in proposals for coexistence, integration, and peace between Muslims and the rest. The latest example is Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of Britain and the Commonwealth, whose latest book, The Home We Build in God, uses the metaphor of the home to argue against both assimilation on the one hand and multiculturalism on the other as models of society. Assimilation treats people as if they were guests in a country house, you <coughs> Instead, society should welcome newcomers by inviting them to build a home together with the indigenous people. Sachs quotes Milton's Areopagitica on the building of Solomon's temple. I wanted to bring that back in to demonstrate that, quote, out of many moderate varieties and brotherly dissimilitudes that are not vastly disproportional, arises the goodly and gracious symmetry that commends the whole pile of structure. Sachs shows that the process of contributing together recreation of society will necessarily integrate the outsider. This is not a social contract, but a covenant that respects the dignity of difference between faiths while requiring in return from the inhabitants both responsibility and civility. There's the rub. How do you build a common home with a community that refuses to follow the architect's plans, who rejects the indigenous style, who dissociates itself from the entire project? At best you will end not with a temple of Solomon, with a Tower of Babel. Islam, as defined by its leading scholars, cannot be integrated into a non-Islamic society. Indeed, it defines itself against such ideals. An Islamic republic or monarchy bears superficial resemblances to the kind of society that Western conservatives try to suspend. There's much talk of morality, tradition, religion, marriage. But the absence of liberty and democracy leads to the perversion of all these things into instruments of tyranny. Politics of Islam has nothing to do with conservatism as it is understood in the West, but is simultaneously eschatological and totalitarian, revolutionary and reactionary. Ayatollah Khomeini warned, we shall export our revolutions throughout the world. To meet this challenge, the West will need, as it always has done, alliances with, with Islamic countries, movements and religions. Much of the fighting against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban is being done by Muslims. Muslims fought against the Nazis and Soviets. Their courage deserves the highest praise. But such alliances will always be pragmatic, and we need to be aware that some of the most subversive Islamists in the West hail from Muslim lands that have been long-standing allies. Pakistan, Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. All of these regimes, and others like them, are weak, and their populations are vulnerable to anti-Western propaganda. 
risk of being too prescriptive, I would like to summarize what I would hope to consider the response to which I might appeal. The West will gain no respect from the East if its foreign policy is seen as weak and divided, still less if at home its cultural and religious identity is seen to be in a state of dissolution. Rather than allowing moral vacuums to open up at the heart of our society, just waiting to be filled by the revolutionary, reactionary, and exclusive prescriptions of Islam, our, re our leaders should be reaffirming the absolute values on which our uniquely inclusive system was founded. Relativism is the tribute paid by reason for toleration. But relativism, whether moral or epistemological, can never be the basis of tolerance. Skepticism, being quietist, can never prevail against belief. The only answer to atavism is activism, by which I don't mean left-wing sort of activism, I mean active conservatism. It is better to obviate the need for radical solutions to pseudo-problems by offering conservative solutions to real problems. If Islam is the solution to the decadence of the West, then we have been asking the wrong questions. If Islam is now the problem, however, then the solution can only be a conservative one. Islam will not overwhelm a society that draws its morality from biblical and its <coughs> rationality from classical sources. The West does not need an Islamic revolution, but a Judeo-Christian
It was coined the, I guess you said, of society's diet suicide rather than murder. And the suicide that we're engaged in is, of course, the inability to stand by the traditions on which our societies rest. So I, I think that what is missing from the paper, which I think is a wonderful paper, by the way, but what is missing from it is this strategy of separation. And it's very, very difficult to talk about, but in the end, I think it's an inevitable result of what will happen in this conflict. Uh, well, just to say, I mean, I, I totally agree, and I, I, I didn't mean this paper to be in any sense an adequate or comprehensive response. It was a series of fairly kind of randomly uh, disjointed thoughts put together, um, because I think, in fact, we don't generally respond to Islam in a very coherent or planned way. I mean, I think I think you know the way that Western countries have responded since 9/11 shows that. That you know we've there's been all kinds of false starts and uh, accidents and um, muddles and contradictions in the way that we've done it. I mean, the president himself, uh, you know, one minute will talk about Islam as fascist, and then the next minute will be sort of paying great tribute to uh, Islam as a religion of peace. Uh, we all do this, and I don't think that's in any way, in a sense, something to be ashamed of. I think it's, it's quite natural that when a Western society is confronted with something as, as, as terrifying as this, uh, it's going to take us some time to evolve uh, a more considered and perhaps uh, effective response. Um, but anyway, there we are. I, I totally agree with everything you said about I mean, you, you mentioned John Howard. John Howard, alas, is um, is on the point of, of losing power in Australia. And uh, he has been, of course, a very uniquely successful leader. But um, just it's an example of, of how um, <coughs> even the most uh, intelligent uh, Western leaders um, are, uh, it is very difficult even for him to, to say the things strategy of 
sending out very, very clear choices that the Muslims, the Muslims living among us must make um, is the right way to go. I mean, it must be done in a civilized way, obviously. Um, I alluded to it in an earlier interview. Uh, John, I think, was, was talking about the possibility of, of uh, actually offering people incentives to return to Muslim countries if they choose. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, uh, uh, but I mean, the problem is, you know, when, when they're the already the third or fourth generation of their families to be living in England, they don't actually know where it is. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it's very often those third generation people who turn out to be the most radical. Um, so uh, I don't think there's any easy shortcut, such as simply removing them forcibly or, uh, or by bribing them. Um, it seems to me that, that it has to begin with education, but that's not enough. Uh, there has to be a very clear, um, so, I mean, you know, in a way, I think we, we, we have to, uh, at least for the, se for, for the process of Islam, we have to abandon the separation of church and state to the extent that the state must take a hand in what is going on in the mosques. We cannot allow our mosques to be centers of sedition, um, which is what they are at the moment. I mean, the police don't even dare set foot inside them uh, to listen to what is going on. Um, uh, and you know, Muslims who, who do raise objections to extremist groups <coughs> uh, are treated very harshly indeed, and they receive no support from the authorities. Uh, so we, we have to do much more. There is, in fact, a much more uh, quietist tradition Sufi tradition, which uh, is, is very strong in Germany in the sense that you know, a very large proportion of ordinary Muslims belong to that. Uh, but about they don't. Percent, sorry? About 3%. Well, I thought among the actual worshippers, it was many more. 85% Certainly would be true. Ah, it's the, the other way around. Sunni, um, the other way around. Sunni no, you're right. You're right. You're, 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 yeah. 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 No, we don't have a lot of Shiites in Germany. But uh, well, we can discuss the figures. But I mean, there there are there are certainly uh, some genuinely uh, moderate Welshmen of Islam. But it's uh, they 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 have no space in the public square at the moment, and that has to change. Um, uh, and above all, uh, I mean. Just, just as an example, since we're sitting in a club, um, uh, there was uh, a very prominent uh, Muslim uh, fellow, um, uh, Zaki Badawi, uh, who in the last died uh, a couple of years ago. But he was quite brave in standing up to the hardliners. Uh, and he used to say that his proudest achievement was being elected a member of the Athenaeum Club in, in London. I, I mean, you know, that, that, that's the sort of man we want. Um, but he, he was an old man, you know, he was in his 80s, and he's, he's gone now, and he hasn't been replaced. And uh, I fear that um, partly as a result of the sort of academic um, radicalism that we've, we've been discussing, um, young Muslims are, instead of having seeing Britain as a kind of civilizational ideal to which to aspire, which some of those early immigrants did, um, you know, people who could 
sort of at their formation while the empire is still uh, around, uh, they see it instead as a sort of oppressive.
and it's a protection racket, isn't it? I mean, you know, they are uh, they're buying um, uh, sort of uh, uh, buying time. Um, I think they think the left that makes common cause with the Islamists thinks that it holds the West out. You know, it is using these naive Muslims as sort of cannon fodder. The truth is quite the other way around. They, they are they are the, 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 the ones who are being duped. Is there an upper party in the FSB Israel aligned with the enemy alliance or my friend? Absolutely. So the, no, I think that the left just they see <coughs> they see these people they may not really like what they do with respect to women or but but you want to be you sure that your uh, common or garden variety Islamist is going to be against the Jews, for example, George Bush. Absolutely. So it's going to have something going for it. There are also legacy considerations. That is, they affect quite a lot. I mean, in, in Britain, I would say they have enough constituencies, and there are now enough constituencies, marginalists in major cities, to swing most general elections. Uh, yeah. Anything up to 50 seats, uh, you know, where Muslims have a very large minority, even in the majority. So they voted the bloc. Yes. That's assuming you see that the whites do not respond by also blocking their votes. That is true. That is true. But then you know, you know neglected to use one word, multiculturalism, which is embraced by both the left as well as the Islamists. Absolutely. And the mayor of Amsterdam very recently issued a statement saying that we will no longer bring suits against those Muslims who beat their wives because we want to create some sort of accommodationist view in Amsterdam that was widely accepted by the Dutch. So what you have is the collapse of any standards on the part of the West, or as I should say, affirmatively to the West, like the mayor of Amsterdam, because this multiculturalist view and of course it's embraced by the Muslims. They see this as an opportunity to strike the Sharia. Will this apply to converts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going to go on to what Herb, Herb said earlier. But first of all, on the specific alliance of Islamists and Islamists and leftists, the respect case is quite an interesting example because what respect is, is basically it's a marriage of convenience between uh, three groups, Islamists, a Trotskyist party, the Socialist Workers Party, and or Galloway, who's a Stalin, a Stalinist, a pro-Moscow communist, is basically his background. And the, the what caused that alliance is a Socialist Workers Party, who is really the, the impetus behind it. Uh, they're obviously, their biggest question is to have a mass audience, to have a mass, and there isn't a, a, a the, the, the way of reaching out and having a, ma a, the a mass audience. The proletariat is gone. The, the proletariat is gone. The leadership, the, the leadership of the Socialist Workers Party, Socialist Workers Party's got two or three thousand members. So I mean, it was a, basically an attempt by them to create a mass, a mass mobilisation, which the anti-war uh, coalition, uh, stop the war coalition, was part of the same thing. Interestingly enough, respect actually at the moment is it probably won't be around for much longer. Here's the Trotskyists, the, the socialist, uh, the Socialist Workers Party element of it has fallen out with the Islamists and Galloway. Stalinists and the Islamists are sticking together, but they have an answer to the Socialist Workers Party. They will split in two very shortly. But the but more the going back to I think that as I said that's to do with having sort of mass the the, the, the Islamists have replaced the proletariat. The Muslims are a sort of a, a mass which they can work with. But going back to your earlier point on Herb's earlier point on what needs to be done, there's an interesting example of that. Because uh, not going as far as we would, but lots of the sort of the sort of statements which we made have actually been made by the British government in a much toned down way. But the interesting thing is, 
they make these statements about you've got to be tough on immigration. Yeah. If uh, if people don't like the the way of life over here, they can go back to the Muslim world, etc. But they're just good rhetoric. I mean, nothing happened about them. Yeah. They're they're statements which some of the statements couldn't be enforced because of European community obligations mm -hmm. and uh, the human human rights act, all that stuff. But they've just given the sort of in a way the worst of all possible worlds because they've given this sort of tough tough language without any without any meaning behind them. So there's still lots of speeches by Labour ministers, how are we going to be tough on immigration, uh, integration, all the rest of it, and then nothing happens. It's just all this just rhetoric. Peter. Thanks, Ed. Um, two, two questions. One's a point of uh, clarification. Um, it seems to me your paper advanced at least one very dramatic point. Like the, the Bush administration has bequeathed to us a, a distinction between um, Islam
world. So why not begin your project with the Muslims over whom the Western world at the moment has the most control, those are Muslims who live uh, uh, live in Europe. And in addition to um, restrictions on immigration, third mention, uh, my friend said, what about prohibiting cousinry? Because his view is that uh, tribalism, social and familial structure, the dominance among Muslims, is one of the uh, impedi impediments to forming liberal and democratic citizens of Muslims. Is it, uh, is it even conceivable within European countries and in Great Britain that they would uh, impose prohibitions that I, that I understand are applicable to, to others on, uh, like Armenian or Muslim? Started by simply prohibiting bringing cousins and close <laughs> 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 relations over from, uh, from other Muslim countries, um, because uh, that at the moment is still very, very, very normal. Um, but uh, and it would also help if, if they actually enforce some of the laws we already have against, for example, polygamy, uh, which is is now effectively legalized by the welfare benefit system, which treats second and third wives in exactly the same way as first wives. So the cousin marriage, one of the one of the examples of what, what, what I was trying to say, because I mean, the governments have, British uh, ministers have sort of said that it'd be much better if Muslims would marry, uh, wouldn't marry, wouldn't marry people from Pakistan, but from Britain, etc., etc. But nothing, they haven't taken any action. It's yes, just it's been political, with it's just been political speech. It's the the, re the issue got raised most actually by a hard left Labour MP and her concern is that apparently she's raised the talk about Brilhui, which is apparently among the Muslim community as a result of uh, cousins and kin marriage as a great deal of mental illness and close to saying that we need a Lewis renaissance, a Lewis respect for ourselves. But I think perhaps, um, I think perhaps that's a, uh, not the right way to approach the issue. As you say, uh, a conflict between two societies, one of which <coughs> is motivated by these, I believe, <coughs> plainly the, you know, has a, uh, a, a distinct uh, advantage. I think that fear of Islamic more likely to be repeated elsewhere than on the other side uh, than for us. And I recall that during the Cold War period, a period from which we may have something uh, uh, to learn, uh, that whenever there was uh, increasing worries about uh, Soviet expansionism or uh, uh, Soviet uh, new Soviet new Soviet nuclear weapons, the support for Western nuclear disarmamentacy went up. Whereas whenever the America demonstrated the This was reassuring, and uh, we knew that the politician was going to make sensible decisions uh, about defence. One practical thing I'd suggest in that book is that perhaps we need something like a Congress of Social Freedom as well. American public diplomacy at the moment seems to me to be 
rich Congress of cultural freedom, uh, supported magazines like uh, The Monarch, uh, Ingenue, and uh, Encounter, uh, supported conferences uh, and seminars, did not try to impose the message, but identified individuals who believed in what was called liberal democracy uh, and was able to defend it uh, uh, in an articulate way. We have nothing like that uh, at present. Um, I hope your own movement America, partly because of its tax, tax laws, its magazines flourish as a result of private patronage. But there is nothing, to my knowledge, in Europe where uh, suburban spouses can go and read Counter Magazine or even Monarch Magazine. Uh, obviously, we need to use the new uh, technology, but we also need, I think, a degree of uh, uh, American leadership in this area. And we're, not we're, un we're unlikely to overcome the problems in the sector of government. And it's yeah. a high problem.
Um, he was the head of the jihad office uh, for Dawah during his 19 years of exile in Syria. Um, our other ally is the Sayyusid, uh, who call themselves Syrians, who soon translate to the Islamic Revolution in Iraq. They're an Iranian creation. We regard them, and I, I, I've had this conversation with people uh, in the White House, they regard those people as moderates because they're willing to participate in a political process. So we're not inquiring into what they want to ultimately accomplish in their political process, it's just that they are willing to participate. Um, so I, I think we could, we could benefit from <coughs> being a little bit more consistent. On this issue of who's authentic, um, I think I have an interesting story on that. I, the, we were never sure whether the blind sheikh would actually testify or not, but I had to get ready in the event that he decided to take the stand. Interestingly, I think he decided not to take the stand because it turned out that he had applied to the great Satan for asylum, um, and he didn't want that to be generally known among uh, his audience throughout the world. But we didn't know for sure whether he would actually testify or not. And Wanting to believe the, uh, the rhetoric we were putting out at the time, that um, Islam was essentially good, and that it had really just been um, given a bad label by this small fringe group of bad apples, um, I, I, was not, I was not dumb enough to think I could get into a, a theological debate <laughs> with a, a doctor of uh, Islamic jurisprudence. But I did think if I could just catch him in three places where he had totally perverted the doctrine, uh, as he had been saying again and again and again, uh, that that would be effective. And I scrubbed his sermons, uh, and every place he said, the doctrine says this, the doctrine actually says this. When he quoted the Quran, it was in the Quran. When he quoted the Hadith, it was in the Hadith. Um, that was alarming. Um, and the, the thing I thought was even more alarming was we had an extraordinarily long defense case. We had a, actually a, a two and a half month defense presentation at the trial. And a number of people came in to testify for our 10 defendants who self-identified as moderate Muslims. And I actually did believe that they were moderate people. There was no question they were moderate people. But every now and then, one of them would be on the stand and a question of religion and religious doctrine and the application of
Um, or say that you have to reinterpret it to say that the, uh, the violence of the Klan uh, is set in its place in time and is not as transcendent as other parts of the Klan. Um, or you just come to the conclusion that everybody is not a religious scholar and not particularly interested in what the religion says, and you know they're more cultural Muslims than religious believing Muslims. But I don't think it's. Uh, I, I think you do have to come to terms with the fact that the violent interpretation is an authentic interpretation. We'll, we'll, we'll end with, with John, and then we'll have a. Uh,
and that actually did what it wanted. It ensured the right would incur the same fate. It was very difficult for them to win without embracing the National Front or by embracing it. And this wonderfully unscrupulous strategy, namely helping neo-fascists in order to accuse your opponents of intending to help them, <laughs> worked quite well for a quarter of a century. Now, for the moment, it has ended with the election of Sarkozy, who, like Howard in Australia, refused to be morally bullied into stigmatizing a key constituency of voters. But the Bush administration's on policy on immigration were the Republican opponents of which were Nancy's bigots, and the agonizing of the Cameronian Tory leadership over whether even to raise or discuss the same topic suggests that this powerful taboo still inhibits conservative parties. Now, why do conservatives hold back from, shrieking, sh from seeking the support of these voters? Well, the argument is that um, we're shedding an image. We don't want to be thought racist, intolerant, or in general, in Britain, the term is nasty. Um, party leaders like Cameron, believe that the issues are the concern only of an old, small, and nasty, but fortunately shrinking part of the electorate. These voters are thought to repel the more desirable group of centrist voters from supporting the Tories, but since they're dying off, they can be avoided and even <coughs> If this is the case, and by the way, it was the case, really, because the, the last few days, the Tories seem to be having nervous third thoughts about their entire strategy. But if that's the case, it's, a mis it's profoundly mistaken as an analysis. Far from being the issues of the past, these kind of national question issues, immigration, multiculturalism, uh, racial preferences, um, uh, to some extent religion, these are the issues of the future. Immigration is a different issue from when Powell first raised it in Britain in the 1960s. In the hands of Pym for time, restricting immigration became not an attack on liberal values, but a defense of liberal values against both the intolerance of Muslim immigrants and the cowardice of the liberal establishment. Furthermore, public concern about both the rising numbers and the potential cultural incompatibility of immigrants is still rising, in fact, rising rapidly. A figure I meant to mention before, uh, that the, out, the, the outflow of Dutch people from Holland is equivalent to 20 million Americans leaving America in one decade. So this is going to become more pressing in the future. Now that's only one example. I could make similar case about um, the gulf between moral traditionalists and economic free marketeers in, in some conservative parties. Um, there's the, the strong hostility which you meet in the Republican Party to the Christian right, for example. But traditionalist, uh, but fact is, almost certainly morally traditionalist voters are a larger block of voters for the right than are economic free marketeers. Uh, that's certainly suggested by a lot of, um, by some, <coughs> some electoral statistics. And although the British idiom of moral debate may be different on religion from the American kind, as Jeremy argues in his paper, the demographic reality is that moral traditionalists are actually probably more important to parties than free market libertarians. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating here, that Tory uh, conservative parties win elections when they win the support of three groups. Moral traditionalists, economic free marketeers or conservatives in some sense, and finally, uh, patriots or nationalists. If you deliberately alienate one, let alone two of these groups, as Cameron has recently been doing, then you are really planning to lose the next election. Now, why are they, why have conservative parties, in a sense, gone astray here? Why have they behaved in this odd way? Well, we, we should actually ex extend some psychological understanding to because in the last 15 years, particularly I would say since 1991, the end of the Cold War, 
they've had to adjust to a dramatic rate of political change. Now, I'm not going to read this out, but just mention very quickly things like that the, the end of the Cold War meant the political status quo and the entire Western world had to be changed. Entire political parties and establishments like the Christian Democrats, who dominated Italian politics, they disappeared in effect and were replaced by new groupings. Socialism as an overarching big idea evaporated, had to be replaced by something else. Um, this, uh, the, the, uh, that's an important point, because in economic terms, when socialism went, there was a move to the right, to free markets rather than state intervention. But it was managed often by social democrats and even by post-communists, reborn as social democrats. Or to put in another language, Bolsheviks became Mensheviks. Global <laughs> globalization undercut national systems of economic control and intervention. Clinton complained that because of his administration's need to please the bond market, he was compelled to be more economically conservative than President Eisenhower. But that, in turn, led to demands for greater regulation internationally to replace uh, the national regulation that had once controlled Puerto Rico's capitalism. Migration flows increased dramatically. Uh, there was an enormous um, upsurge of wealth. And finally, uh, and, oh, the, the NGO revolution, and finally, the managerial revolution took place not only within countries, but internationally too. Samuel Huntington pointed out in his book, Who Are We? American elites on both the academic left and the business right increasingly felt that they had more in common with each other than either had with the working middle class of their own societies. Their political attitudes reflected this distance and a new set of transnational loyalties. Now, how did these things play out in politics? Well, they had a big impact uh, on political parties and partisan loyalties, but it took time. Um, um, the industrial working class shrinking in size, labor unions lost power. Um, the left found that its traditional sources of electoral support were shrinking. Uh, that was also happening because blue-collar workers were becoming affluent and becoming also Reagan Democrats, or in Britain, Essex men. So Bush could win West Virginia on the votes of open-class miners, and John Howard could be cheered by working-class loggers alienated by an Australian Labour Party that had gone green. But as the workers were moving right, significant groups in what initially looked like a new middle class were moving left. University graduates in the arts and the social sciences, people who worked in new science-based industries, people in media, the public sector, actually began to form a new form of social class altogether. One at home in either public or private sector, but possessing a strong commitment to left-wing humanitarian causes. Left-wing parties began to move to look for new constituencies and found them in low-paid immigrants, middle-class intellectuals, clients of the state. To oversimplify, the class composition of the parties changed remarkably. The left became the party of higher education, the public sector, and minority groups. The right, that of the aspiring middle class, the private sector, and sections of the working class alienated by middle class reformers. Under these electoral change impacts, states, governments, businesses, and international bodies all began to conduct their business differently. Um, there was a steady growth in bureaucracy <laughs> and undermining of democracy. There was a sh this, I think, is the there has been a shift in power and decision-making from institutions that are accountable to <coughs> like Parliament or <coughs> Congress, to those that are either accountable to no one um, or that inhabit some kind of constitutional limbo. Um, the shift of power from legislatures to bureaucratic agencies and the courts, the shift of power from democratic nation-states to supranational bodies, everything from the UN 
for the institutions of the EU to the Kyoto process. And then finally, the development of ideologies that, lagging behind these events, serve to justify them and to defend the new loci of power. Now, Ken's paper, the Ken Mendoza paper this morning, outlines some of these ideas. For my purposes today, I would stress ideas like transnationalism, multiple loyalties, overlapping jurisdiction, the human rights revolution, which supposedly replaces the protection offered to a citizen by a national government uh, and gives instead uh, protection offered by NGOs and international courts interpreting international laws. And this, these are very, very large developments. And there are a number of ways of looking at them. You can see them domestically as a threat to democracy, which I do. Internationally, as a threat to national sovereignty, which I also do. But as I say, key thing is in both cases the transfer of power takes place from accountable bodies to remote bureaucracies and to the new social class that stacks them. This is known as the new class in domestic context and as the transies thought for transnational progressives uh, in an international context. I like transies because it has a faint hint of sexual ambiguity. This gets its this class gets its authority from its expertise, or to more be more precise, from its credentials, since these are required to validate its powers. Huntington pointed out its sympathies and loyalties are to the institutions and ideas that reflect its interests, rather than the which are for international, rather than to the traditional institutions of its own democracy. Its members generally regard patriotism and national feeling as atavistic emotions that retard either economic rationality, the right, or cosmopolitan ideologies of democratic humanism, the left. They see America and Britain not as nations like other nations, uh, but as the embryo uh, uh, of um, a new universal nation which has neither boundaries nor restrictive citizenship. And accordingly, they are instinctively in favor of policies that increase the powers of the courts, of international bodies, that blur distinctions between citizens and foreigners, erode the boundaries that divide nation states, physical and moral and legal, and that, as Andy McCarthy's paper pointed out, that a class that is viscerally hostile to traditional national security concerns that allow some discretion to a, to a democratically accountable executive. One might say that America, followed by Britain, America is the first nation to have a dissident ruling class. Now, this fact has domestic political implications. A dissident ruling class, whether consciously or not, is obviously going to be suspicious of the nation it rules. I, I, I don't think I need to really beat this point, point, press this point hard. One is so well aware of the phrase racist, homophobic, and sexist, which again and again you hear applied to ordinary Americans by their rulers. But in addition to its instinctive drive to expand the power, any bureaucracy does that, this class will push it in the direction of centralizing measures of regulatory excess and not only towards industry. Indeed, Frank, the late Frank Johnson, a good friend of mine, said of the new labor movement, because it's not allowed to nationalize industries anymore, it nationalizes people instead. So it pursues a series of policies that weaken the self-reliant and patriotic citizens, creating an underclass through welfare of various kinds. It imposes its own managerial ethos on previously independent institutions, the universities. Um, it criminalizes respectable citizens wherever possible while treating the criminal leniently. It elects a new and more tractable people through open or illegal immigration. It develops an ideology of multiculturalism to justify such a national reinvention. And it also invents Orwellian thought crimes on such matters as Islamofascism. Daniel demonstrated that fairly clearly. Um, 
um, thought primes which tend to inhibit or suppress the expression of normal or common sense or patriotic sentiments. Now, all of this sounds extremely odd behavior. I concede that. Uh, why would a ruling class act in this way? Well, the answer is it would do so if its loyalty were to an international patriotism higher than a conventional national one. We've seen that in the different contexts of the 30s. Or if it found a divided society easier to rule than a united one. Um, if it found a pauperized nation easier to control. If it found a self-reliant citizenry an obstacle to its power. And if it found non-accountable institutions more susceptible to its influence than democratic ones. My conclusion is, as I mentioned above, we are ruled by Mensheviks, that is, by social revolutionaries acting within the formal parameters of democracy, but draining it of substantial meaning as best they can. Now, we might have expected radical parties or liberal parties to champion these changes and conservatives to oppose them. But that, you know, if we go back to the, the 1991 and the 90s, that didn't really happen in a clear way. The political reality of the time was one of flux and ideological confusion as people understandably tried to make sense of these very dramatic new developments. In those circumstances, you know, in confusion there is profit, as Tony Curtis says in uh, Operation Petticoat. Um, political, uh, political entrepreneurs, above all Tony Blair, seized some of the opportunities. His actions, in my view, helped to speed up the rate of political change in Britain to indicate this direction and to completely discombobulate the Tories. Blair is a key figure in the transformation of Britain arguably the Tories, in the direction of this bureaucratic liberalism. I'm going to talk now about Blair and the Tories. I'm, I, have a I have a passage too uh, on, on what's happened with the GOP, but I think I'm going to just cut that to one point because uh, we don't have all day, and, and secondly, you, um, uh, but the Tories, <coughs> but Blair's position is interesting because I think there's a divide on conservative occasions between Brits and Americans on, on Blair. A decade ago, the Tories were out of power, exhausted, without self-confidence, adrift ideologically, and apparently permanently behind Labour in the opinion polls. But they could at least comfort themselves. They could say, well, we've just carried through a great national revolution under Thatcher, and a great international revolution too, so it's a bit un it's understandable we're a bit tired. Secondly, we have been succeeded in, we've converted our opponents. We've been succeeded in power by a political leader who has embraced half our ideas, those on economic policy, and he's keeping us out of power by the brilliant tactic of imitating us. I think it's only a mild exaggeration to say that Middle England voted for Tony Blair in, seven, in 1997, 2001, and 2005 because he was the only man standing between them and the Labour government. <laughs> <laughs> the Tories did not notice, or if they did, they did not realize the significance of the cultural revolution that he was imposing on Britain. Happy that he accepted the economic market and the Labour reforms of Thatcher, they ignored the facts that he was abolishing the British Constitution piece by piece, turning the House of Lords into a place of personal patronage, giving separate assemblies to Scotland and Wales, getting rid of the Lord Chancellor of the Supreme Court. Other policies including, I think this is absolutely key, of overturning the previous undivided parliamentary sovereignty by granting judges the power to overturn laws passed by Parliament under the Human Rights Act. Other policies, embarking on a vast and unannounced increase in immigration, legal and illegal, vastly increasing the number of regulations and the bureaucratic agencies needed to supervise them and reducing the role of parliament in the everyday processes of government. Blair, as I think Americans may not know, didn't like parliament and attended it very infrequently compared to his uh, predecessors. Um, 
I might add, he would also have joined the Euro and signed the European Constitution if he had not been prevented from doing so by Gordon Brown and the French voters. Um, uh, 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 merci beaucoup. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but leading Tories were boasting until recently that the leading Tories, until the other day, really, they were <coughs> boasting that David Cameron, the new party leader, was the heir to Blair. Um, now, that's the recent past. Blair is gone. He's, his departure has altered the political scene in ways that no one predicted and few foresaw. Uh, though these, uh, and few could have foreseen, though these changes may themselves change quite quickly, um, uh, they are not necessarily to our advantage, as the Edgar Hillary details say. Uh, Blair is not missed. His departure is, if anything, uh, well, he achieved surprisingly little apart from winning elections. His principal legacy, the war in Iraq, is whatever you thought about it, and I supported it, uh, a legacy of disappointment. As for other elements, he came into power promising to improve public services without raising taxes, and the general impression is that he's raised taxes without improving <laughs> public services. The feeling today in London is that a magician has left the stage and the spell has been broken, leaving behind a collection of rags that we once mistook for riches. Brown, whom the Tories were convinced would be a dire Scottish socialist and so unpopular, has turned out to have exactly the manner of quiet gravitas that the situation after Blair requires. Um, and uh, he now dominates the scene as at least as, as powerfully as Blair did when he was Prime Minister in the early days. Much more significant, Brown has moved swiftly to take ownership of those naturally conservative issues that Cameron, anxious to imitate Blair and seize the center ground, had abandoned, often with a great air of self-congratulation. Brown has seen that the drift away from democracy at home and sovereignty and international affairs is potentially a major labor vulnerability, and he has moved swiftly to avoid it. The best example of this is his stress on traditions. So far, there's no content to this, and I don't believe there ever will be. But the Tories have foolishly not responded to it by pointing out its lack of content, but by attacking patriotism as vulgar and demeaning. They have criticized such measures as, um, uh, as flying the Union Jack, uh, on the grounds that high-minded Britons don't do that sort of thing. Reminds me of uh, Flanders and Swan and the English Abeth, you know, we didn't go around and say how wonderful we were. Everybody knew that. <laughs> uh, so, but that won't work today. And meanwhile, Brown has been honing phrases like, we need British jobs for British workers, which will appeal to the Tory working class, both in the Daily Mail and Middle England. All in all, the Tories find that they look like New Labour circa 1997, at the very moment when Blur and New Labour policies of that period now look shabby and uh, cynical. They are desperately stressing their commitment to progressive issues like solving climate change when Brown is seeking to benefit from the next set of problems and the cultural responses they will require. The next problems are in fact questions of national identity and loyalty and assimilating Muslim communities into a British political identity. These are quintessentially Tory issues. They're the kind of things that Indian army officers and imperial civil servants knew instinctively how to tackle after the by the end of empire. Brown is a shrewd operator. He will make a mess of them because he has no real feel for questions like patriotism and loyalty. I mean, going to a Labour government for a policy on patriotism is like going to a, a steakhouse run by vegetarians. It's not, you're not going to like what you get. Um, but he does know that people are concerned about these issues. The Cameron Tories are prevented by their cultural blurism from realizing even that. By the way, I have to add that today in newspapers there's a story saying they're beginning to change their mind on some of these things, but it's a little late in the day. 
So as things stand, British Conservatism has lost its way, will probably lose the election, and will then have to rediscover its soul. It will be a big search to have. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a similar, I, I will argue that a similar, but less, much less disastrous situation in, obtained in the US, and in both countries, the defeat and incoherence of the Conservative parties has allowed this new dangerous power structure to be erected and to take charge. Now, uh, Conservatism, in my view, is in the doldrums at the moment in the United States. I will say only one thing about it. Uh, we have to separate the fate of conservatism in America from the fate of the Republican Party. They, of course, generally go in rough lockstep, but they're not the same thing, as was demonstrated fascinatingly by the issue, again, of immigration, where whatever else, whatever your view of the, um, uh, the campaign on immigration reform, the defeat of that bill backed by the White House and both party leaderships by an insurgent campaign of conservatives around the country was a very, very important political event similar to Reagan's exploitation in, 19, in the 1970s of the Panama Canal issue. It united people, it brought them together. We don't know what's going to happen next, but we can say that it demonstrated that the conservative movement is alive, and, and I suppose the phrase would be alive and kicking ass, wouldn't it? But, um, uh, but that's, that's certainly, they're, they're in a better position. But of course, uh, both Republicans and conservatives find themselves at the moment um, in the doldrums because, uh, because of the failure of uh, a Republican administration to live up to conservative ideals. Now, what if, if, if it's the case um, that um, if it's the case that uh, British Tories and Republicans have not yet analyzed, let alone proposed persuasive solutions to this great problem of bureaucratic liberalism at home and abroad, then we have to ask ourselves, and by the way, the reason for that is in part is that after all, the leaders of the, these parties are members of the new class. Cameron, in particular, is a graduate of its influential media wing. They, they, they are restrained by its taboos and social customs. They have to meet their other fellow, their fellow members of it at, at cocktail parties and dinner parties, and they really don't want to be embarrassed by being attached to issues which all decent people think are monstrous. So they, uh, I mean, I frankly um, uh, would suggest that uh, uh, a fairly hopeless situation for the Tories, but still, what in theory should a conservative response be to this situation? Well, I think we need to respond at three levels, the high, the peripheral, and the vulgar. Uh, let's take the, issue, the response of high principle first. I think we should highlight three simple propositions. We support democracy against new forms of oligarchic and elite rule. We support national sovereignty against the supranational rule of the transies. And we support the spontaneous organization of society against bureaucracy, against the dead hand of bureaucracy. All three propositions are valid, they are potentially popular, and they are capable of being argued in respectable but fresh ways. Our problem is, and I made this point some years ago uh, in the Keith Joseph lecture, is that the elites were fighting. In the past, conservatives had a respect for elites, for good reason. But it turns out that elites uh, are like the mob. They have passions of their own. And those passions are by and large shared by neither the people nor by us. They are the rationalizing passions that Burt diagnosed two centuries ago, and they are a greater threat to liberty than the opinions of the mass of voters, who being closer to the hardships of life, have a greater sense of reality. So uh, in our position, in, 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 in opposing the elites on, on, in these three ways, I think we are being true to ourselves in a deep sense, because those elites no longer represent the, the kind of values in society that, we, that they would have done 100 years ago. Um, well, uh, I'll skip over that point for a bit. Um, 
but the stakes are high because either we retain a vigorous democratic policy or we find ourselves living, perhaps not altogether unpleasantly, in a stifling bureaucratic state in which all our wants are provided for except liberty and except a democratic debate that actually influences the real course of politics. Now, the peripheral. Well, I made a few extra notes here on the peripheral because um, th that what th the basic idea is that if you're going to try to assist societies, this is really about the society versus bureaucracy, we're going to try to assist society to be vigorous, independent, to shape its own future, and try to restrain the bureaucracy. Then you've got to, then there are a thousand ways every week you can do this. And I'm just now going to take a few of the ways of doing it. And, and, not, and in no particular order, and certainly not in any hierarchical order. First of all, of course, we really have to press for a massive decentralization of state services. That is to say, in simple terms, if we have a, school, a state school system, we abolish it in, in, and put in place a system of giving finance to the parents of children and making all of the schools independent, which they then present the checks which you've given them to the schools, maybe adding them to them, maybe not. But in the process of that, you simply get rid of an entire level of bureaucracy, which in Britain is called local education authorities. It's got other names in the United States. And the same would be true for hospitals as well. There's no reason whatsoever for the government to run a network of hospitals. All it needs to do is to provide the patients with the necessary sums of money to buy the operations they need. Secondly, I think we need to have a massive deconstruction within state services. Let me give you one example, the education service. That's much too bureaucratically organized <coughs> now. At the moment, the Tories <coughs> just proposed the other day an idea. They said, uh, we've got disruptive pupils in school. <coughs> what we're going to do is, if, they, if they're really disruptive, we're going to insist that they stay on another year. <laughs> so, you know, after a while, the entire class will be <coughs> disruptive children. Now, what should we do here? Well, I think very simple. Why do we have a single school leaving age for everybody? It makes no sense. Um, in fact, it's, it's, a, it's a bad idea on several grounds. What we should do, surely, I suppose you couldn't get rid of it entirely, you couldn't let people leave at the age of 10, but, but let's say that from the age of 14 onwards, we say that any child can leave school when he passes or she passes a particularly stiff exam. What does that do? It effectively gives the disruptive children an incentive to learn, because they really want to get out of prison. Some of them will find that they like it and are good at it and will not leave prison. Others will leave prison and get a job in the private sector. At some point, when they're 27 or 28, realize they've made a mistake. But under the rules, they could go back and receive state finance for a further, for a further block of education. In other words, what the state needs to guarantee is that uh, pupils will be able to receive so many years of free education in their lifetime, as, but as little as possible imposing a single um, um, routine on all children, which won't suit all children. So I'd say let's, uh, so the second one is massive deconstruction of the bureaucratic structures within state services. Um, thirdly, um, uh, I believe very strongly in this one, limit credentials. I, I really, uh, there are obviously some jobs, train surgeon, <laughs> fighter pilot, which require some credentials. But generally speaking, um, the jobs that need to be doing need talent and ability and experience. And if you can demonstrate those things, you shouldn't need to have, let us say, a PhD. I'll give you a very clear example of this kind of thing. We had a dinner party at home with a local teacher. And, and, and 
it was a very emotional occasion, and, and um, we didn't quite know how to cope because she broke down at the table over her treatment as a teacher under the um, No Child Left Behind Act in order to try to make sure that there are high standards of teaching but unable to fire anybody who's a bad teacher or, or stigmatize anyone who's a bad teacher, a rule has come in that you must, in order to teach certain classes at certain stages, have a certain kind of credential, a particular degree or a particular uh, professional qualification. This is determined by the, by the government and the teachers' union. This woman, who's been teaching very successfully, and whom I believe to be a very fine teacher, that's what she taught her, my church taught her, um, she had to, under the rules, write a letter to all the parents of the children she taught saying she was unqualified to teach them and inviting them to raise objections to her doing so. Well, of course, everybody at the school knew this was unjust, but of course, the parents weren't all at the school, and, and so she felt completely humiliated. This is a classic bureaucratic solution which doesn't even begin to solve the problem that you have, namely incompetent teachers who can't get fired, but therefore penalizes and stigmatizes able teachers who have not gone through some particular bureaucratic hoop. Now, that's an extreme example of credentialism, but credentialitis is, credentialism has got to be tackled, and, and, and it's very important because credentialism is the lifeblood of bureaucracy. They don't know how to operate if they don't have that. Um, I also believe in establishing bureaucratic councils within the bureaucracy. Um, council, bureaucrats whose job is to destroy the lives, reputation, and happiness of the other bureaucrats. <laughs> For example, we, we have inspectors of state schools. Well, I would have inspectors across the schools, hospitals, and so on. They, they would have a responsibility to report, no power, but absolute immunity from libel action. So that they could actually, I mean, if you talk to any time, if you spend any time talking to doctors, uh, you, they will say things to you like, don't, for God's sake, go to that place. That guy's a butcher. He murders people by the yard. <laughs> now, now, not that that ever gets to the ordinary patient, but why shouldn't it? You know, and, um, and if the guy does murder people by the yard, and then he, well, uh, he can always say that uh, he's not allowed to sue for libel under the rules. Um, I absolutely agree with something that um, Jeremy said about the, uh, the internet and the modern media being ways of, of offering people alternatives to uh, the present bureaucratic structures and doing so much more efficiently. And I would go further and say that, generally speaking, across the board, uh, as the history of the American conservative movement demonstrates, uh, we need to have alternative institutions uh, in order to, uh, when we have failing or hostile uh, institutions on the other side. The think tanks are fundamentally private sector universities not subject to the rules of political correctness. That's what they are, and that's why they're valuable and useful. And then finally, I would like to see um, uh, more, uh, more uh, procedural rules in democracy, uh, like voter initiatives, recall, and particularly the impeachment of judges. Uh, that is now allowable under the rules, but it seems the political class has taken a vow of inactivity on this, and whenever you raise it with them, they say, well, no, we don't want to get into that. Now, that's my second lot of things, the peripheral just attack at every, every time there's an opportunity, just send in somebody to cause trouble. Third, the Volga. This is a very simple point. I was asked uh, some uh, weeks ago to write advice to the conservative uh, leadership, not by the conservative leadership, of course, but, um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and I, I came up with a number of ideas, and, and, um, but the, the one that was most important, I think, was uh, 
Waterloo too, uh, don't be afraid of controversy. Welcome it. Controversy is the first sign that your opinions are making headway. Exactly the opposite approach lies behind Project Cameron. This is rooted in the assumption that the current intellectual and cultural climate in Britain cannot be serious challenged and must therefore be appeased. But even if we could be elected by appeasing a fundamentally inhospitable culture, which is doubtful, we would then have to steer by the same stars in government, and that leads probably onto the rocks. If you are playing, as you should, however, a long game, you're not thinking about the election in three weeks or three years, but about the next 10 years. If you play a long game, you can begin the long process of persuading the nation, including the media, that values like patriotism, self-reliance, and enterprise, and approaches like competition, um, choice, and diversity of provision in public services are sensible and even admirable. You can even afford to launch initiatives that might initially strike people as risky or eccentric, but that can be made to seem reasonable when properly explained over time. My, I, my, my, my raising the school leaving, my abolishing the uh, school leaving age is an <coughs> example of that, I think, but maybe I've not persuaded you. Now, having said all of this, I come to my final point. Uh, um, these are things we could do and should do, and I think in some respects after uh, the defeat in elections will do, um, because they're the kind of things we did in the past when we were defeated after Goldwater and so on. But there is um, another very important element Final, my final point here is a very important element. The US Fifth Cavalry is arriving to assist conservatives in the form of Osama bin Laden. Um, most of the things I'm complaining about here occurred between 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and 2001, um, uh, September the 11th. They are the product of many things, but among other things, they are the product of the long holiday from history that we then enjoyed. And as a result, they reflect uh, a set of views that is fundamentally does not worry about risk. Uh, it's risk averse in things like environmentalism, but it's, it's, it doesn't worry about risk in political terms, in civil disorder terms, in foreign policy terms. Um, Osama bin Laden and September the 11th have changed that mindset. Um, the problems that are going to be presented to us by the Islamofascists are formidable, as you know, we've just discovered in the last session. But they have one great advantage, that they validate our view of the world and they undermine the view of the world of the liberal bureaucrats who cannot even address them seriously because to do so would mean abandoning some of their most deep-rooted convictions insofar as they have deep-rooted convictions. So I think in the, uh, at the end of the day, um, uh, although the political landscape is very discouraging at the moment for conservatives across the world and in our two countries. I think uh, there is nonetheless the arrival of a challenge and the external challenge, um, which is in my view probably always necessary to keep a society disciplined. And among other things, we are the party of discipline, even of self-discipline. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. That's terrific. Um, we don't have a huge amount of time, but uh, we have some time. John, I think are terrific, uh, really terrific. Uh, two were trifling points and one, uh, I think, a substantial point. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more on the matter of credentialing, but when you said uh, you don't count brain surgeons, I'm reminded of a time I was invited to speak in Las Vegas and the lieutenant governor of the state was a brain surgeon, and among the most ignorant people I ever met. 
And at the end of it, I was asked by a newspaper man, what did you think of him? And I said, well, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, second, the second point, I, I think you're absolutely right about the inspectors. Of course, this did happen in the United States, and it happened in a rather profound way. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, these inspectors pretty much of monitoring the affairs of other inspectors. And it happened in a welfare agency in Wisconsin and accounted in a large part for the change in that culture. What happened, which I think is exceedingly interesting, is that people in the welfare business were rewarded every single time they added a name for someone who added the welfare role. Well, the only way you could change that culture was to reward people who would comment on those who added names to the welfare role. So you had inspectors who were rewarded now for reducing the number of names <laughs> and also commenting on their colleagues who were adding the names. Had a profound effect on that culture. It was one of the major reasons why we did engage in the welfare reforms that occurred during the, uh, the period when Tommy Thompson was governor. Now, now the more uh, the significant thing. It seems to me, on the basis of what you've said, that there is the separation, as I think quite rightly stated, between conservatism and the Republican Party, and obviously between Cameron and the, and the Tories on, on conservatism as well. And if you look at some of the issues that you've mentioned, namely restricted immigration policy, opposition to affirmative action, the recognition of Islam's incompatibility with the West and its traditions, an opposition to libertarianism, which has generally taken the form of being libertines, not libertarians, that's another point, and lastly, support for patriotism and opposition to transnationalism. What do you think, and this is the question, what do you think about the creation of another party, a third party, dealing with these very measures, a national conservative party, that challenges both the Republicans and, of course, the Democrats to think seriously about these issues, a party that is based in part, in large part, on nationalism. Well, I've always been very sympathetic to this idea, um, and, uh, I, and I, but I've always thought that it should be, would have to be done in a particular way. Uh, as we both know, because we're from New York, we did have uh, a very successful conservative party, which I remember you were a standard bearer, and, um, and that, but that was made possible um, or made easier by the rules of the electoral game. Uh, you could vote for a candidate um, under two party lines, couldn't you? And, um, and um, they, uh, so effectively, um, the, that, that effectively meant that the Conservative Party could endorse uh, a Republican candidate. And if, if, if as a result, you know, he got a lot of votes on the Conservative line, that told the Republican candidate where his supporters were. And secondly, um, if it looked as though, of course, you didn't like, there was <coughs> someone you didn't like, which happened in uh, 76, I suppose, wasn't it? Uh, good, um, 1970, when the Republicans chose a liberal, so um, the Conservatives put up a genuine Conservative, and they uh, effectively, in a three-way three -way split, the Conservatives won the race and held it for six years, and was, uh, and was defeated six years later by someone almost equally Conservative, Daniel Moynihan. So it was, by and large, it was a very successful event. Now, what that requires, however, uh, is for other states to adopt the same kind of rule. At the moment, um, uh, very few states have got that rule. I'm not saying you couldn't find a National Conservative Party without it, but this would give you a good cover story. To, um, the Republicans would obviously fight you tooth and nail if your operation was designed to destroy the, to, to defeat the Republican Party, wouldn't they? If you can present it as being, in effect, a conservative ginger group that may attract even more votes into the uh, into the Republican column, or, uh, then I think that might be doable. I would like to do it, by the way, but I don't. But I'm I'm thinking of the practicalities here. It's a very hard thing to do, but something has to be done to force the Republicans to take uh, sensible measures. <coughs> I thought there was a dazzling and profound account of our present troubles and trials and tribulations 
The question sometimes arises as to whether left and right are now outmoded as true distinctions. And I think <coughs> there is a case for saying that the, the, the real distinction in one sense is between sentimentalists and realists, uh, because there is a particular emotional tone to what you're talking about. Um, you assume that there is a certain interest in transies and bureaucrats and so on. I think you're probably right. But the interesting thing about modern voting patterns is that there are large numbers of people in universities and in bureaucracies who are more or less detached from interests. And whose um, dynamic is really the ideals they pick up. So this contrast between interests on the one hand and ideals on the other is what gives you the fact that expressive voting, and that means that a lot of the old calculations of politics go out of the cliché is pear-shaped. Very interesting. Um, I think we're going to ask you about I wonder whether I could offer a different uh, uh, response to the question that you posed, which is why, why do um, conservatives not play conservative cards? Why do they hold back, uh, to use your word? Well, I think uh, in the case of the two issues which your earlier remarks were most concerned with, namely immigration and a loss of, um, loss of sovereignty uh, uh, as a result of uh, transfer of power to the European Union, is that if they played those cards, they simply wouldn't be believed. Uh, indeed, uh, uh, about a month ago, uh, Cameron did tackle the strength of immigration slightly and gave sli slightly greater salience uh, to the European question. He opposes the, uh, uh, the, um, the Constitution and wants a referendum uh, uh, on it. Um, but uh, he did not get the expected boost in the opinion polls. In fact, the opinion polls went down. The uh, uh, metropolitan elites and the chattering classes that he had been assiduously uh, uh, courting treated him with contempt, whilst the rest of the population didn't believe him. It's not that they don't want uh, a, a better policy on immigration, a lower level of immigration. Uh, it's not that they don't want uh, uh, a restoration of the authority of power back in the European Union. There are countless opinion polls that show that they, both, they want both of those things. But they have been promised both things so often they simply don't believe them. On these two central issues, the British, uh, British people are effectively disenfranchised. There has not been an election on which they have had a say on immigration, nor has there been a, an election on which they've allowed to express a view on Europe. It is true that in 1975 uh, there was a referendum, uh, but it was on whether we should stay in uh, the question uh, uh, that was put to the British people uh, was rigged pollster Robert Worcester, who devised the question, has, has acknowledged, and the uh, whole project was sold to the British people as uh, a limited commercial enterprise, uh, rather than uh, when, in fact, from the Treaty of Rome onwards, it, it was evident that what we we're dealing with was uh, a process of uh, ongoing political integration. The, uh, the so-called modernizers in the British Conservative Party, Cameron included, accept much of that analysis. And they say, well, if people think they're going to be uh, 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 lied to on these issues, we won't say those things. But there is, of course, another way which which John's uh, remarks uh, imply, um, which is to get serious. It is to, to have the kind of uh, uh, fundamental policy reappraisal, which took place after 1945, and then under Margaret Thatcher in New Jersey, 
which you've never done before, right? Don't have to deal with what are our splits and, 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 and divisions, uh, but nevertheless uh, convinced enough people that Tories could do what had previously been done, but, but had not been believed. So if the Tories want to be believed, it seems to me they have to get serious. The key to winning the moral high ground and the ability to, uh, and the capacity to be believed, uh, they have to win the intellectual high ground. And on that, there is no prospect. On that, there is no prospect. We will have to wait at least uh, until uh, after the next general election. I have nominated him for Grand Prince Manor. <laughs> 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 well, just following on from, from Kerry, um, you, you identify one problem with the Tories. Sorry, this is getting a bit sort of parochial and unfortunate, I know, but I think there are some lessons for American students in this. Anyway, um, you identify one problem with people like Cameron, that because they belong to the liberal bureaucratic class and they share its, uh, its social conventions and norms and assumptions and things um, uh, and they don't basically want to be ostracized. <coughs> therefore can't challenge uh, any of those assumptions. Um, to which, of course, the obvious retort is, well, why do Conservative parties choose people like that to lead them? Well, think about how Cameron <coughs> was actually chosen. Um, what actually happened, as I remember, almost exactly two years ago, was there was a Conservative conference at which both he and David Davis, who's not part of that little group, uh, had to make speeches. Um, the BBC all basically decided in advance what the outcome was going to be. So as soon as Cameron made his speech, it was hailed as the greatest thing since you know, Gladstone. Um, uh, whereas Davis's speech was immediately denounced as a flop and total disaster, even though most of the ordinary Tory delegates that were there sitting in the hall didn't seem to share that view. Um, but the point was that the, the from then on, Davis didn't really have a hope. I mean, he was written off completely. Um, so how do you get round the problem that, that effectively the kingmakers in this process are the media wing, as you put it, of the liberal bureaucracy? You know, they have an almost total control. I mean, if, if you doubt that they do, I mean, look at what happened to Duncan Smith, for example, who you know didn't, again, belong to their little group he was written off even when the Tories were actually heading the polls, which they were during the summer before he, he was deposed. Um, you know, certainly he wasn't a great leader in any way, but uh, he actually <coughs> had more connection with ordinary people than someone like Cameron. But he was completely undermined and then uh, evicted um, unceremoniously. Um, again, you know, very largely as a result of a sort of media flop, basically. Um, I mean, without wishing to be too much of a conspiracy theorist, I don't see how you get round that problem. Well, you get round it by having very talented um, <coughs> political leaders. Like, I mean, they're, they're exactly the same pressures um, were exerted on Reagan and Thatcher, but they were able to survive them. I mean, I'm not attacking Duncan Smith, whom I know and like, but, but he's not as bad as it. It's not as bad as Trump. No, no, I'm, I'm not saying he is, but uh, I mean, it was a completely different system.
a referee on a kick. And it seems, and that is, it seems to me that one of the great achievements of conservatism in, in the state, I don't know so much about Britain, but I think it's in parallel development, in the last generation has been what we might call the institutionalization of the conservative impulse, beyond simply journalists to think tanks that you alluded to. And so far as I can tell, those think tanks will survive the next election. So we do have an infrastructure here to build upon, starting with Deborah Lightmill holding out <laughs> deliberations. And uh, now, there still needs to be an agenda to be, to be developed by that. But it's, it doesn't, it seems to me that, that the short-term prospects politically are probably not too good, depending on a lot of circumstances that need to be changed if we think. But that the long-term prospects are, to some extent, encouraging, given the nature of the infrastructure that's been developed, developed, which I think has been a, a grand achievement if we look at it historically over a period of two generations. Um, my only question to you uh, from, uh, from that would be, do you have any proposals or recommendations to make or observations to make about the state of the infrastructure of conservatism, ways that it might be improved, elaborated upon, whatever, in the coming few years? Um, you can just know the answer is in Britain. Yes, uh, Tim Montgomery, whom we, I think the Brits here know, um, was sent over here by the Conservative Party, although he was an independent figure, and, was, and spent about uh, three months looking at the American conservatism with the intention of coming back to England and, uh, and encouraging people to start a whole series of private and independent institutions in different fields to mimic the American conservatism uh, and create a, a conservative movement as well as a strictly conservative party. Obviously, I think we would both agree, one has to have some, as a conservative, one has to have some reservations about the mechanical nature of that exercise. But, but having said that, uh, it's basically a good idea, and there are increasingly, partly because of the internet and other very rapid communications, there are signs of an independent conservative movement developing. And of course, Jerry, uh, when he was, um, was, was, was the, you were really the beginning of the political think tanks, weren't you? You were a you and Keith Joseph and Mark Thatcher, they, that, was the, that was the first kind of you know, Hudson Heritage AI type uh, uh, operation in England. That's some years ago, but uh, it hadn't developed much beyond that, but now it is developing quite rapidly. So yes, in England, I think that can happen. In this country, I don't r really know that I have any great new things to add. It's, it, it does seem to me, you're right, there's a very strong um, movement here. I, I would tend to be looking at a slightly different area connecting with last night, which is to say, I would like to see more young conservative writers going into the film industry, into television, into, um, uh, into areas where they, they influence popular culture. And, and again, um, uh, that seems to be happening as well, but, but we'll like to see it happen on a bigger scale. Well, I think we're just about out of time. John, that was a, a terrific paper, and all the papers were terrific, as was the, the discussion. One, one link that uh, I saw between your paper, John, and, and Tim's earlier presentation was um, Tim pointed out this seeming paradox, I don't really think it is, between the fact that uh, we have a government that expects a lot of its people uh, and uh, they are admired when they um, sort of uh, try to buy them off with, with uh, uh, rights and welfare and so on. Uh, they're held in contempt. And it, it strikes me that one of the, one of the things that may be source of conservative disarray at the moment is um, an increasing uh, uh, way in which many conservatives have sort of hate liberals in, in this way. 
they, they increasingly want to be liked. That is a, a character flaw for individuals, a character flaw for institutions, and the whole rhetoric of, uh, in, in my view, of compassionate conservatism seems to me to be taking a, a very dubious page out of the book of uh, sentimental uh, liberalism that, that I feel very, is, a, is a big mistake. And I mean, it led to all kinds of you know, programs that were, I mean, possible tragedy, self-conscious, considering your